Hey folks, just so you know, today's episode was our second actual video podcast. So if you want to watch the video version of this episode, please go to youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 and check it out. Thank you. Hi there. This is Judith O'Day from George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. And you're listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Imagine, if you will, that the most frightening things on Earth are about to come out of the darkness. They will look surprisingly like your neighbors, your friends, your family. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Now accept the fact that there's no escaping the awful consequences. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the Earth. Dawn of the Dead. They must be destroyed on sight. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It's too late. It's already happening at a theater near you. Dawn of the Dead contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Dawn of the Dead from United Film Distributing Company. Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to 13 Days of Halloween. <laughs> Hey folks, Rigor here. Before we begin today's video, I just wanted to correct an erroneous statement that I made at the beginning of it. I referred to this as our first podcast video, and that fact is incorrect. This is actually our second podcast video. Chris Esper and I did one a while back where we talked about the fact that he was coming on board as full-time. We talked about our Patreon and our Tee Public and all that fun stuff. So um, I apologize for any convenience. Those responsible for the sacking have been sacked. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storage Jaws. I'm your host. What? When? Oh, tomorrow. Oh. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Let me start again. Hello and welcome to not only the 13th episode of Then Is Now's 2021, 13 Days of Hallowtober, but also Then Is Now's first video podcast. I'm your host, Rigor. 
Now, before we begin, I'd like to quickly remind listeners and viewers to visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you can find not only this show, but our other show, The East Meets the West, and you'll find our links to our Tee Public and Patreon page. And on Patreon, there's another show that we do that you can't find anywhere else. So we highly recommend you check that out, along with all the other goodies there. Again, havenpodcasts.com. Okay, so last year, 13 Days of Hallowtober examined what are widely regarded as the scariest movies of all time. This year, our theme was modern zombie films, and that is uh, not the voodoo films uh, like White Zombie or I Walked with a Zombie, you know, the Bela Lugosi ones from before 1968. No, these are the ones that came after and were inspired by or kind of influenced uh, Georgia Mero's night were influenced by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 68. And so for those of you brave listeners who've been with us every step of the way on these 13 days, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And today is going to be a fun episode because today we are going to have a roundtable discussion about six films, the six zombie films of the, the late great George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. So class is officially in session. And joining me today is a group of horror movie and zombie film experts and enthusiasts. I'd like to name you guys off one at a time and then you can give a wave to the folks at home, okay? All right. Awesome. So first up, we have Mr. Bill Van Rin, who is the uh, publisher of Drive-In Asylum Fanzine, which is an amazing magazine. Hi, Bill. Well, thank you. I think so. <laughs> awesome. Glad to have you here. Also with us is Jim Harbison, who's the author of A Disgusting Supermarket of Death. Welcome to the show again, Jim. Thank you for having me. And joining us once again, I, Joe, I don't think, uh, I think the last time you were here was our last Halotoba. Maybe we did one in between, I think. Didn't we do like Invaders from Mars and a, a couple Yeah, we of did, yeah. Yeah, yep. filmmaker Joe Lemieux, thanks for coming back and joining us. Good to be here again. Awesome, awesome. I'm so glad you guys are here. So um, we're going to start this off with a question that I have for everyone, and then we'll kind of go into each film. Now, today, I don't expect us to do a full deep dive like we would do in an entire episode since we have six films to cover. But, you know, it, the conversation could go all, all over the place. It could go anywhere. We may go on tangents. So... You know, you people at home, you might want to just get your pillow and blanket and your popcorn and, and snuggle up for a fun time. So the first question that I have for the group is, and uh, Joe, I'm going to direct this one to you first. When was the first time that you became aware of George Romero or his zombie films? Or what was the first film that introduced you to his body of work? I, be I believe it was Night of Living Dead. I just rem I remember it played on... Channel 38, I think. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. It wasn't played on it wasn't played in Creature Feature at all. No, Creature Double Feature never played in Boston. Yeah, no. No, it, it's like in some other station, either WPIX maybe, um, which is 68. Was it 68? No, 68 was, um, um, I forget the call letters for that, but that was um, out in Western Mass. PIX was Channel 11 from New York. And that had okay. Chiller. And uh, WOR had Fright Night on, I think, Friday nights. I used to watch those when we first had cable. So it might very well have been on that. Yeah, I just remember seeing it, and it scared the crap out of me. So, because uh, it was 
it was black and white, but it also because uh, I remember seeing uh, in school when they used to show us the Nazi concentration camps uh, documentary photo, like were black and white, so this almost felt kind of documentary style, and almost almost kind of real. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. Jim, how about you? Well, technically, I think that the first time I saw it was the first Romero film that I saw was the snippet in, what is it, either Halloween or Halloween 2, John Carpenter's films from 78 and 81. It's playing in the background. Um, I didn't actually see the whole thing until, I think, 1986. Before that, though, I, I kind of fell in love with Romero because of Creepshow. Um, which is a, one of my favorite horror films. But when I saw Night of the Living Dead the first time, it kind of blew my mind, but it also literally made me puke the next wow. day. I, all I could think of was that scene where the, the zombies are eating the, the young couple whose truck has exploded because of the gasoline mishap, and they show them with that creepy, almost underwater organ music, and they're, you know, like the intestines. <laughs> You know, they're going to town on the dead. It's like a barbecue. And, and I, I just couldn't get that, that vision of the, the intestines going into the people's mouths out of my head and barf, you know. <laughs> That's hilarious. Bill? Well, um, I was into horror movies ever since I was a really young kid. And uh, I was really lucky because my aunt and uncle got me this book called horror films by Alan Frank. And it was like the Bible to me. Um, and they wrote a lot about night of the living dead in that book. And I, I still had never seen it until one night, um, my mom and a friend of hers decided we were going to go to a local park cause they were showing movies in the park. And the movie they were showing that night was night of the living dead. And, uh, I think I was about, it, I, I think it was, 1977 uh so i was about seven years old and uh wow i mean i don't know who decided that they were going to show night of the living dead in, in a park but um, i would love to thank that person and <laughs> i owe my life to that person maybe um i was horrified by that movie it was just i, I knew what to expect but i didn't know what to expect i didn't i didn't know how uh, disturbing and brutal it was going to be. I mean, I was a kid, so you know, I, I saw the the intestines, like um, Jim mentioned that. I mean, th that really stuck with me. To me, that was the pinnacle of the film, and uh, was seeing guts, because you didn't see that in very many movies, at least movies that I saw. And uh, yeah, that that pretty much changed my life. Like, uh, I was horrified, but I liked the feeling of being horrified by it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've told this story on the show before. I, I, the first movie I, I recall vividly seeing in 1972, I was two years old in the back of my parents' car, and we saw the movie Asylum with Peter Cushing and Herbert Lom. It was one of those amicus anthology films. And there's a, a, a scene in the film, of course, this is a bit of a tangent, but there's a scene in the film where um, this woman's husband has been chopped up into pieces and the body parts are all individually wrapped in like brown meat wrapping paper and they start to move and go at her and I will never forget that scene that terrified me and for years my mother and I couldn't remember the name of the film so we called it Chopping Heads so you know who wouldn't want to pay to see a movie called Chopping Heads with Peter That's Cushing a better title 
Yeah. <laughs> so, Rabid anyways, weasels. Yeah, there you go. So that that's where I started with um with horror movies, and I I don't recall when I first saw Night of the Living Dead, but I I knew I had heard about Dawn of the Dead on the playground from other kids, and you know their relatives had seen it, and um I think Joe, I think you're right. I think we saw it like on late night TV perhaps over the cable in the early 80s. So I would have been in my early teens at that point. Um, it wasn't I, like a, it was like either like a UHF, UHF type, type channel, I guess. Or maybe know. it was, yeah. I'll do some digging in my TV guides when I get a chance um, eventually and see if I can find when that was. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think the first one though for me was I had rented Dawn of the Dead in high school. And that sort of opened up. I had been reading about Romero, I think, either through Famous Monsters or Fangoria. And because um, I remember being excited that Day of the Dead was coming out in 85. So I had already been a fan at that point, but I don't really remember when the first uh, time I saw a Romero film was. Um, so let's get into the first one that we've been talking about, The Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night of the Living Dead. The plot of the film follows Ben and Barbara Cole and five others who are trapped in a rural farmhouse in Pennsylvania and attempt to survive the night while the house is being attacked by mysteriously reanimated corpses known as ghouls or zombies. So, you know, this movie is the granddaddy of the modern zombie film. It's kind of set up the ground rules for zombies in the modern era in 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 Romero's world it's either if you're if you die you come back or if you're bitten by one of the zombies you come back um they're slow shamblers they're not fast moving zombies and the only way to dis- to kill them is to destroy the brain usually a, a headshot with a gun um i think fire can destroy them too but it's considered one of the best of Romero's six films do any of you disagree with that statement do you have one that you like better I think it's one of the best horror movies and maybe one of the best movies ever made and certainly the best of Romero's zombie canon. It's, it's, 
I consider it like one of the one of the five groundbreaking films that changed cinema forever. Uh, it's it's up there with um, Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, two thousand one, and The Graduate. I mean, it forever changed cinema the way people looked at cinema. Yeah, there's really no way to under to overestimate the influence that Night of the Living Dead had because even if even if the the movies that came after it weren't about zombies per se, they did have that. I think Night brought that brutal edge, um, the documentary style that we were talking about before. Um, you know that that Night is one of the first things that I would think of that brings that to films. Um, but that said, I wouldn't say that it's my favorite of of his movies. I think um, I think I like Dawn a lot more because Dawn really sort of took that that vision and expanded on it almost impossibly because you know Romero did that movie on such a small budget compared. I don't want to get too far into Dawn, you know, but um, I think Dawn I, I like a little bit better than Night. But you know, it's hard to compare the two because they're both brilliant. For different reasons and uh two of the best movies that that he ever did absolutely absolutely what i think is one of the funniest things about uh the release of night of the living dead is that when they first came out and i think this was only in the pittsburgh area they released it on kidney kitty matinee shows and the kids were you know, <laughs> yeah and they're watching the movie they're thinking oh yeah this is great and they're talking and then, and then all of a sudden this is one of the reports is they stop talking and then they get to the part, like you guys mentioned, where the zombies are eating people and some of them were like crying. <laughs> it was I think you're horrible. referring to Roger Ebert's review of the movie. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe. He mentions that in his review. I'm from Pittsburgh and, um, you know, I, I don't remember that ever playing in Kitty Matinees, um, but it <laughs> did play on TV right around the time that Dawn came out. Um, that was the second time I saw Night. And uh, there's a local horror host here named Bill Cardill, legendary oh, yeah. man. Chilly Billy. Yes, yep. Chilly Billy himself. And he's in the movie, obviously. Um, but he showed Night of the Living Dead as sort of like a promotional thing for Dawn. And he had George Romero on, I believe. Um, and during every commercial break, there was, a, there was a TV spot for Dawn of the Dead. So that night blew my mind. That's oh, great, yeah. That's awesome. I, I've seen it on YouTube, so. That's so cool. Yeah, because I had Judith Day on the show. I'm sorry, Judith O'Day on the show a few uh, episodes back. And um, I mentioned to her about when it premiered at the Kitty Manage. She said she didn't hear about it at the time, but she did hear about it like a year or two later. And she wasn't really, um, she didn't really have a grasp of what the movie, as the movie was catching hold and building up steam. She was sort of you know, it was a job. She did it. And then she was on focused on doing other things. And it wasn't until years later that she really realized how immense this movie would eventually become, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, Dwayne Jones, for so long, it, it was a midnight movie, even after its original release. And, you know, there really wasn't such a thing until maybe like the early 70s, uh, when when they really started to catch I, Reefer Madness was another one. Uh, they showed Reefer Madness at midnight a lot, like in, in you know, college towns, you know, where, where people were most likely to be stoned and wanted to go out to a movie at midnight. And that's how night came back. I mean, they showed they showed that at a lot of midnight matinees and it caught on. It, it became a cult thing. So and the, I same think... could, could be, the same could be said for uh, 
Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, no one <laughs> knew the impact it would have on audiences until once it was out there. Right, well, right. Part of the, the power, sir, let me just finish my thought. There's a primal quality to these films that because they're low budget, it's like the, the Blair Witch Project. You know, it's believable. There, are not, there aren't really any special effects to speak of, and the ones there are are entirely believable. And it's not like you have a bunch of beautiful actors say, you know, reciting lines that are beautifully crafted. It's just a gut punch and one that you can imagine. You know, it, it's almost like they've reached a point where the willing suspension of disbelief isn't necessary. And that's why one of the reasons it's so effective. Yeah. Romero, one of the brilliant things about Romero is he he never overreached when he made those films. And he made them on all the early ones anyway. He made them on really low budgets, but he didn't attempt things that would look completely ridiculous. Um, everything that he did, he was able to make very believable. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people might have attempted something a little more ridiculous th than he did, but he just kept it really simple with, you know, th there was a little bit of blood, there were some guts, and just the whole concept is what made it so disturbing more than anything else. Oh, and the claustrophobic atmosphere of the film being trapped in a house, and especially with, you know, putting all these different personalities in the house together in a life or death situation. It's, it's almost like, um, uh, like a social experiment. Like um, like that Twilight Zone episode where what was the one Maple Street where the the aliens cut the power on the neighborhood and the monsters are doing Maple Street. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you know it's, it's almost like a social experiment like that just to see, in terms of the film itself, crafting the film to see how would real people respond in a in a ridiculously horrific situation like this. I think like the Squid Game. Oh yeah, it reminds me of the Squid Game, the lifeboat ethics game theory, all this. And it's, it's terribly deconstructive because the, the hero is African-American and the second most important protagonist is female. And, you know, that, I mean, that's obviously deconstructive and the, the ending, you know, underscores that. But, you know, it's, uh, like you said, it's, uh, it's like, taking a bunch of normal people and pitting them against an unimaginable horror and seeing how that spins out depending on the personality of each player. It's right. kind of similar to the Frank Darbon's uh, The Mist. Uh, the people in the supermarket are the real monsters. The creatures outside are, are just who they are. Yeah. To a yeah. degree. That's true. And one thing about this film, and at least, uh, Bill, you made me think of this, talking about it being on the Midnight Circuit, is that I think around this time, late 60s, early 70s, is when the spook shows were dying out. And those usually went around midnight where you had the magician and he would do like these 3D gory shows, almost like the Grand Guignol. And then they, you know, they'd play a movie and then a guy in a monster costume would run out in the audience and grab a girl and carry her away, stuff like that. And those had been going on since like the 30s and 40s. And by the late 60s to early 70s they started to die out and i think this sort of thing like you said reefer madness this uh texas chainsaw then even rocky horror picture show sort of replaced that experience of rather than it being a theatrical and a film experience it was just a film experience but it was terrifying nonetheless you know 
So one of the things, too, about Romero's films is that, especially like in this one, he's always got some kind of social subtext in there. And Bill, you re referenced the fact that the main character was was African-American. And I know Romero's on record as saying he didn't actually do that on purpose. He literally, Dwayne Jones was the best actor for the role. So he picked him. But I think it's kind of taken a life on its own and shown that, you know, by showing or portraying a strong black protagonist whether Romero intended or not I think it paved the way for especially I think for a lot of to start off with the black exploitation cinema that we saw shortly after this movie and then you know fully coming into the mainstream as time went on do, do you guys agree yeah. yeah now there's a movie I wish I could have seen Dolomite Against the Living Dead <laughs> <laughs> it should have happened but it didn't yeah. um I think it was Jim that, that mentioned about having um, a hero that was African-American, but I, I, I think oh, that it's God. important to remember that when this film came out, um, you know, America was a much different place. And this was the late 60s, you know, there was political turmoil, the civil rights uh, issues that were going on at the time. I mean, it's really, it's kind of probably hard for us to imagine what it's like, what it was like at the time to see this movie. And to be so taken aback by the fact that, you know, there was this, they, they just treated Ben like he was any other character. And there was, no, there was nothing, there was no special reference made to his race in the film, which was really. No, he's a strong character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he was the one that you, that you thought was going to live. And, you know, Romero, Romero being a terrible cynic killed everybody in the film. <laughs> what, what's going to sad too and strange that i heard that romero said they drove the film canvases to new york to find this distributor distribution company and it was the night that uh martin luther king was assassinated right oh that's right that's right well, Does well, wanna, if um, you think about it okay. i just wanted to add one more thing i love the idea of the assault on the family farm you know the family farm is sort of the apex of cultural definition for the longest time in the United States. And I think who is the writer, Krivkor, who, who idolized the family farm in the 18th century, a French writer kind of anticipating, anticipating um, um, democracy in America by de Tocqueville. Anyway, but, but this is a, this is a full on sort of destruction of the myth or the, the icon, the, iconographic nature of the self-sufficient family farm that maybe all of the the horrors the ghosts of the horrors of the american past are coming back to destroy the maybe the focal point of american self-definition the family unit itself is under attack in the film because you know th there's a, the moment where the little girl comes back to life and she basically her kills mom. her mother and father while well, yeah. her father was almost already yeah. dead, but she eats him. And then uh, she doesn't even eat the mother. She just kills her and just leaves her there. Right. Which is really kind of and like also Johnny. Johnny comes back too. Right. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Yeah. That too. So it was like your own family members. We're going to, we're going to murder you in this movie. Just well, that like Christianity, when Jesus says, I've come to, to drive, you know, drive a, not drive a stake, but, but to pit brother against brother, right? Because you either are with me or against me, or you're, you're a Christian or you're not. And the family relationship is irrelevant. 
And the, the depiction of the one family in this, which is uh, Ben Cooper and not Ben Cooper. Was that his name? No, uh, Ben was Dwayne Jones, right? It was Harry Cooper. Harry Cooper. And, um, and the wife and the daughter, they're all dysfunctional. You know, the only traditional family unit portrayed in this movie, and they're completely dysfunctional. You know, he's overbearing. Um, she, the wife is kind of subservient and doesn't really like him. He's not likable at all. The daughter, we really don't get to see much until, like you said, where she kills the parents. Which makes she her hurts. one of the best characters. <laughs> she hurts. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, final thoughts on on the original Night of the Living Dead. Um, what do you guys think? Uh, should Should people go out and see this? Should they start with this one? I would imagine. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely start with it. It should already be the cornerstone of your existence, Night of the Living Dead. We owe all of our horror fandom. The night of the our modern the cornerstone gravestone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which, by the way, last April, I had the good fortune. My wife and I went out to Pennsylvania. There was a um, drive-in theater that was having a, a movie marathons on Friday and Saturday, and so we went to uh, the Evan City graveyard, the Evan City Cemetery, and we saw like I we watched the movie the night before, so I could figure out where the characters were of Barbara and her brother at the beginning and um we got pictures there i did a couple of videos from there and it was amazing to see it you know it was it was pretty wild to just find the kramer gravestone i think so yeah that's the one what are the what are the selfie ethics for for a cemetery i'm wondering you know i don't know i hadn't thought about that (laughs) that cemetery the other day what are the selfie ethics for a funeral you know i'm I'm sort of like this is banging around in my head i'm like Maybe I should never do a selfie. I don't know. Would you know? He, the person's dead. He doesn't care. So many people have taken pictures in that cemetery. It's it's been desecrated already. So <laughs> there's nothing you could do that would be worse. I wonder if anybody's crashed their car into a tree just to get the same replica. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, funny. I did. <laughs> I did post on the show notes of that one. I did post. Um, or I might have done it as a blog. Uh, uh, pictures I did side by side comparisons from the movie and from the picture that I took for, at the graveyard, try to you know emulate that. Um, but yeah, it was pretty wild. Actually, I think um, who was the, the guy that played Johnny was also one of the producers on it. And of course, I don't have his name in front of me. Um, Russell Striner. Russell Striner. Yep. He, I think either him or his family um, put up the money or raised the money to uh, reconstruct the little chapel that's there because it was about to fall apart and it looks awesome now and they actually use it for functions yeah there was a whole uh fundraiser i have the t-shirt save the chapel there you go and uh that's right you're from that area yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i heard that some people got like pieces of the old chapel before they reconstructed it too so like jim morrison's grave (laughs) (laughs) get get a little even better than that yeah it's like like catholic reliquaries right you know people want people want little iconographic pieces of the things that they love so they'll you know they'll take little little fragments the more what is it uh memento mori's yes things that they love and uh i was wondering i i was thinking about getting a piece of the berlin wall once and it's like how do i know it's real (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, how would you ever know? 
Well, it's like when you could order, you know, from the back of Fangoria, you could get the necklace that was a little, little yeah. with real dirt from uh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> totally real, man. Yeah, someone in the backyard scooped it up and mailed it to you. <laughs> what a brilliant scheme that is, and the, and the locket that it came in looked so nice in the end. Uh, and what you actually basket. thought was like a little cruddy little thing that looked like it came out of the gumball machine, right? <laughs> This is totally on a tangent. Do that to one of those. Go ahead. Wear it to one of those speed dating things, and you'll meet the right person eventually. There you go. <laughs> Depends on what you mean by right. <laughs> <laughs> there is one more thing I wanted to say about night before we move on. I don't know if you were ready to move on yet. Oh, no, no, I had a tangent. I was going to go on. So, <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting that I. I mean, I'm one of the people that talks about night so lovingly, you know, and, it, and it's much deserved. Uh, but there is a tendency to overestimate parts of the film, too. Um, and one of the things that it, that happened that really amuses me is how if you go online and look at the message boards, you know, IMDb doesn't have them anymore. But uh, you can you can find people discussing this online frequently uh, about how Night of the Living Dead doesn't give any explanation for the zombies, which is totally not true. There is an explanation for the zombies in it, and it's a Venus space probe fell to Earth, and there's a mysterious radiation in the area where the zombies are coming back mm -hmm. to life. So, you know, yeah. I mean, that's that's what they meant for to, to be the reason for the, for the zombies to come back. Because why else would you have it in the movie? I mean, why why would you put a coincidental happening they like that? They mention it on the radio in the car, and later on they're talking to the generals in front of yeah. the Capitol, which they, they did guerrilla style. They just put flags on some car in front of the Capitol and shot guerrilla style, which you couldn't even do today. You know, I had heard years ago that Romero was pissed that whenever they would release it in TV Guide, every so often the description would be about that, the Venus space probe. You know, a space probe brings back radiation that, that causes the dead to come to life, and I heard that he was mad at that, that he, yeah, he threw that in there, but he, w he wanted the origin to be not known. It could have, it could be, you know, it could have been anything. You know, what I mean? to me, if you wanted the origin to be not known, you wouldn't have put something in there about a space probe falling right there with a whole bunch of mysterious radiation. I suppose. Well, you know that if you follow the logic of Return of the Living Dead from 1985, that's all a snow job. And what really caused it was the 245 trioxin marijuana spray that happened to, you know, revive dead veterans. So thank you, the war on drugs for, you know, the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> well, wasn't the original title for Night of the Living Dead called a Night of Anubis? Yeah. Yeah, Bill, can you tell the audience about why Night of the Living Dead lost the copyright as well? Uh, because the original title was um, Night of the Night of the Flesh Eaters, I think was was what they registered it under. With uh, you know, that's what they filed their copyright under, and then they decided to change the title to Night of the Living Dead, and nobody changed the copyright, and nobody put it on the film, so uh, they it slipped into the public domain, and basically you could show Night of the Living Dead and not pay anybody any royalties. And you could even 
like when the VHS boom happened in the late 80s and early 90s, like everyone had Night of the Living Dead out on VHS because you didn't have to pay anyone. It actually appears on the TV in my my latest movie that won an award at the Charnachet Film Festival, Bill Blood, watching Night of the Living Dead. That's right. That's awesome. (laughs) There's a reason for that, right? Sorry, George. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And speaking of, you know, Return of the Living Dead, uh, John Russo, who co-wrote Night, co-wrote Return of the Living Dead. Oh, he wrote it, right? I don't know if he co-wrote it. I thought it was the guy who wrote Alien, the director. Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon and John Russo worked on it together. He he wasn't attached to it, but I think it was very loosely attached to it, I guess, somehow. I don't know. John Russo wrote a sequel to Night of the Living Dead called Return of the Living Dead, a novel. Uh, It had nothing to do with the plot of what we know to be Return of the Living Dead now, but he optioned it. And so uh, he got a story credit for having written it. And, uh, you know, I think he did work on a draft of the script, but then Dan O'Bannon stepped in too. So it was kind of like a, a shared thing. Right, right. So, yeah, so that was uh, our discussion of Night of the Living Dead. Now let's move on to Dawn of the Dead in 1978. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room, not that room! Now... George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. We may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center, one of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. We've got a war. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn 
of the Dead. Following the scenario set up in Night of the Living Dead, the United States and possibly the entire world has been devastated by a phenomenon which reanimates recently deceased human beings as flesh-eating zombies. Despite efforts by the U.S. government and local civil authorities to control the situation, society has effectively collapsed and the remaining survivors seek refuge. Protagonists Roger and Peter, two former SWAT members, join with Stephen and Francine, a helicopter pilot and his girlfriend, planning on leaving the city and take refuge refuge in an enclosed shopping mall only to be destroyed when a motorcycle gang shows up and allows the zombies into the building so uh jim wow. first thoughts on dawn of the dead <laughs> well let me preface this by saying i haven't seen it in a long time because it's it's not streaming and i ordered a dvd copy i'm waiting for it to arrive but based on my recollection um who's the I just wanted to, who's the guy who's the special effects guy? Doesn't he play the famous Tom one? Savini. I, Tom Savini, yeah. yeah. He was Sex Machine in Dawn of the Dead, I think. No. And uh, he, in, uh, uh, Dr. Dawn. No, yeah. that's right. And I think he's one of the motorcycle gang members. Yeah. And Which I love the premise of this one. His and, name character, character name in the movie is Blades. Yeah. I love the premise of this one because it really is a kind of full-on assault of the capitalist paradigm. You know, it's like when hell is full, the dead will go shopping. You know, I mean, the people want the dead wandering the shopping mall don't look that much different than living people do wandering the shopping mall. They're sort of in this, you know, covetous haze. And, you know, I, I, it's a it's a rumination on kind of the meaningless of the acquisitive existence, and you know that what do you do, right? What do you do when the world's coming to an end and material scarcity for you has been that it's a problem that's basically been solved because you live in this magnificent 20th century treasure chest, and so what do you do? You slowly drive yourself insane, and. Like today. I, I think, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> um, so th those, you know, th I watched the Zack Snyder remake, which has many great qualities too, but I prefer the Romero one, especially there's this wonderful scene near the beginning where this TV studio is under assault by the dead and some guy just gets torn in half and his guts get pulled out. They start eating him. I don't think I'm confusing this with Day of the Dead. Maybe I am, but... <laughs> I think you're getting little bits and pieces of the series in there, but that's great. <laughs> they all sort of blur together after a while, you know. So I'm trying not to be indiscriminate, though. Or I'm trying to be discriminate. Well, I just remember even as a kid being blown away by that whole opening sequence that took place, and you're just watching the breakdown of society happen on live TV. I just love that, where the people yeah, arguing and screaming at each other. You know? Well, that's what Dawn of the Dead is really about. I mean, th that's why it's frightening. The zombies, you know, they're just monsters that people, they're obstacles for the characters in the film. But the real problem is that there is no more society. There is no more safety. These safety nets that we have in place have all collapsed. Um, the, the government can't control it. The local police can't control it. Nothing is going to stop this from overtaking us. And that's what's truly frightening. 
I did like the uh, uh, SWAT team going after the uh, into the low income housing thing, which is yeah. totally gruesome. And then they start looking at each other. So it's like, what are we, why are we doing this? So why are we fighting for this? What's the whole goal of us doing this? Like, that's not yeah. to question their morality as they're out there killing zombies or, or whatnot. Series of the Vietnam conflict. Yeah. It was right. also brilliant because it allowed Romero to get something in there to show people who were living in poor conditions, like people that were living very humbly and struggling and they didn't have nice surroundings. And then all of a sudden later in the film, you've got these main characters who are living in luxury while the rest of the world burns. So that that helped get his point across, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's funny, too, because that that whole scene just makes me think of the fact now I've been doing we've been doing right along zombie films leading up to today and um, a, a common theme. And you'll you'll see this again in um, Romero's last zombie film is what happens in that apartment building at the beginning of dawn where people still don't quite understand what's happened to their loved ones and they don't want to see them get killed because they don't quite necessarily understand that these people are, are, are dead. Almost like, you know, we as a species have a very difficult time of letting someone go. And if like if someone dies and then you bury them, they're gone. You have to wrap your brain around that. You go through all the stages of grief. But if someone dies and comes back, that's a little difficult to wrap your brain around. So you can see how some people would sort of break down. And I found that, like I said, across many movies, that's a common theme, not necessarily a full on plot, but it's definitely a, a common subplot that we run across. Would you guys agree? Yeah, definitely. I, I would say so. I mean, it's at least for the, the characters in the movie. So. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah. Um, I'm not sure that it's, I'm not sure it's really a theme in Day. I mean, no. The main, Larry Cardiel's lover gets bitten, but she amputates his arm to protect him. And I think it is a theme in Diary of the Dead because the the characters there are in the midst of the of the outbreak and you know um well i meant across other non-romero films i should have been more oh, clear oh, oh. we've okay. seen that in other films but yeah we'll get to that because in survival too, Resident that, evil apocalypse the the priory where the anglican priest is keeping his sister and feeding her that's probably the yes, epitome but, of what you're talking it became about. a zombie movie cliche Really, and and I, I took that to mean it was more that they saw something that worked in Romero's movie and they were like, well, let's do that too. There's a loved one that's dead now and the people that are surviving don't want to admit that they're dead and the the the, the new zombie is going to claim other family members. I think that just- and Don't like, forget the end of Shaun of the Dead, which might be the best right. portrayal of this phenomenon. You know, he's dead, he wants to eat me, but- you can still play Nintendo or PlayStation <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I wondered why he hung on to the best friend, but he didn't keep his mother. Right. Because she turns on me. <laughs> That's well, step was a... the, that dad was a jerk. She married him. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, Bill Nighy's character, Philip. Kill Philip, head to the Winchester and wait for it to all blow over. You know, and it's but, funny too because I think in the. I, show... I gotta go. Okay, Joe. Well, awesome. Oh, uh, real quick, give a plug to the zombie film you're working on. Uh, Mike Neal and I are, are working on a period piece 
zombie-like film that takes place during a revolution war uh, with two actors. Uh, it's a short. It's called The War Orchid. Uh, we start shooting in November. So. Nice. Awesome. We'll uh, keep us posted. I could be up at 5 a.m. tomorrow. So. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Joe. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been an honor. Lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you, Joe. All right. Take care. Happy Halloween. Thank you, you too. Right. Bye-bye. <laughs> um, also, in the, the TV show The Strain, we saw, wasn't there one of the characters? I can't remember if one character ha- kept his mother in the apartment or was the other way around. The mother kept a, a kid, not a little kid, but a grown kid in the apartment, even though they had been turned into whatever the vampire creatures they were. I don't know if you guys watched The Strain at all. I don't watch that, no. No. No, but there's something like that in Return of the Living Dead in which uh in which the who is it? The 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 guy who works at the Unita medical supply warehouse is, you know, zombifying and his girlfriend doesn't want to leave him, so they stay they're locked in the chapel together and he dies and he says, I want your brains. Yeah. And they, they actually repeat that to greater comic effect in Return of the Living Dead Part Two, where they're together, I think, in a church, and she says, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want to eat your brains. And she says, okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the TV show The Walking Dead did, did a lot of it, too. I mean, you know, they they used almost everything that Romero used in his movies. But one, one of the characters was the governor kept his zombified daughter in in a closet or he had her locked up somewhere he would bring her out and like play with her even if she was a zombie well also um, uplifting tv (laughs) i can't well there's maggie the 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 film the zombie film with schwarzenegger that came out recently about the guy whose daughter is doomed to zombify and he's trying to do the best he can to keep her around as long as possible but i i I can't believe i didn't think of this before fido you know the domestication of zombies and the the best is the former Zomcon employee who has like the pedophile relationship or the ephebophile relationship with the dead cheerleader zombie or whatever. Right. You know? <laughs> That's so true. By the way, Bill, I have to say, um, I really like your Italian horror film uh, lighting there. <laughs> Thanks. Mario Bava came to my house and set it up. I was going to say, yeah, it's very Bava-esque. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it was the, the moment that shaped my life. Nice. <laughs> um, I got to say, though, with Dawn of the Dead, I remember being on the playground and this kid telling me that his cousin had seen the movie. He's like, oh, my cousin went and saw Dawn of the Dead the other night. And this person blew this guy's head off and there was zombies were eating people. And he was just going on and on about it. And I, it was one of those things like back in 78, I guess I was eight years old. So it was like I knew that the movie existed. I maybe he even saw it in the paper at the in, you know, we talk about newspaper ads before. Um, and, but I also was afraid of it, even though I loved horror movies, I was terrified of everything as a kid. I'm still scared and watching them. Um, but I remember knowing that it was a dark movie. It was probably really gory and it was more for adults, but that someday I would like it. And, you know, just a few short years later in my teens, like, like I said, I did, was able to rent it. Um, but when we did rent it, I had a, another buddy sleep over my house and, um, we got into an argument because we weren't sure which character was Peter and which character was Roger. And my friend's name was Peter. And of course my name is Roger. So we were arguing. We, we both wanted to be Ken Forey's character. We're like, no, he's Peter. No, he's Roger. 
<laughs> Sorry to break it to you, but your character turned into a zombie. I know, yeah. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead actually didn't come out in the United States until 79. Okay. Um, it came out in Italy first because Dario Argento put up some of the money to do it. And, uh, you know, he had the rights to do his own cut and to release the cut in, in, in you know, Europe. Uh, so... And then Romero had rights to do whatever he wanted with the American release. And it, it came out here in, uh, I think it was April of 79. Okay. And, uh, ironically, one of the first places that it played, at least in our area, was um, the theater right at the Monroeville Mall. Oh, wow. Because uh, that was my mall. I mean, even before the movie was made, I, I had been going to Monroeville Mall for years and it was exciting that they're like, oh, they made a movie there and it's a scary movie. But then when I finally saw it, it was really bizarre because I knew the mall so well and I, I, everything in the movie, I can tell you like, oh yeah, I remember that, that weird ice skating rink. Like why was there an <laughs> ice skating rink in the mall? Right. Uh, and that, that strange clock with all the things that opened up. I mean, that was one of my favorite things about going to Monroeville Mall was seeing that. And uh, it really did seem like a paradise. Like it, it, There wasn't anything like it that I had ever seen before as a kid. And uh, I just couldn't believe there were all these plants inside. And, and like uh, there was all, all those water fountains and a little bridge that went over it. It was a magical place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this movie, you know, it predicts the mall culture and, it, you know, while simultaneously satirizing consumerism, because the, the malls were pretty much starting to pop up all over the place around that time. And, you know, like like you had said earlier, Bill, I think was, um, you know, the zombies or, or maybe it was I forget which one you said it, but someone said uh, the zombies are walking around like shoppers, you know, <laughs> in the same way that shoppers wander around with the glazed look over your face, especially around Christmas time, not knowing what to buy, you know. It also reminds me of, there was this really sort of, I don't know how to describe it, 70s dystopia aesthetic in this mall where they filmed a lot of Logan's Run. And I guess it was like a brand new mall in Houston, Texas, or Dallas, Texas. And, you know, it, it looks kind of space age filtered through maybe a bad trip. I don't know, but it's 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 really interesting because... You know, it's uh, there are some places, maybe not the Monroeville Mall, but I mean, I, I don't like shopping malls. I don't like the lighting. I don't like the crowded conditions. But some places just lend themselves to horror, even if they're designed to attract people and keep them inside like casinos. Right. And, you know, maybe it's because I, I don't like crowds. I don't like being enclosed. But still. I mean, this is another example of Romero targeting maybe the new apex of the American experience, the shopping mall, as opposed to the family farm, where we are, we're trading self-sufficiency for, other, you know, having to buy stuff from other people to have to live and hitting it spot on in the, in the nose. Oh, I get yeah. the impression that Romero, uh, Romero arrived at the the shopping mall setting just sort of by chance um i don't i don't know if he planned it out as intricately as as we think he did like looking at it after the fact um i think somebody made a remark or he was there 
he had a friend who showed him the back part of the mall, like all the all the secret places in the mall. And um, he said, boy, wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, if people hid out in the mall and lived after there was some kind of catastrophe, like this would be the place that you would come to live. And I think that was sort of like the germination of that seed that he had for Dawn of the Dead. And, um, but yeah, it, it really was sort of like the perfect place to do a story like that. Um, and one of the most brilliant things about Dawn of the Dead is how he managed to exploit that location. They didn't pay anything for that, I don't think. Really? To, to do that movie that, I mean, I don't really know, but it wasn't, certainly not like if you did a movie in a Malta, you couldn't do that today. You right. would owe so many people so much money to, to film, like all of those businesses that, that are glimpsed in the film, you know, there would, there would probably be some rights issues everywhere. And he was able to, to pull that off for just, you know, a, a fraction of what you would have thought it cost. And he had a helicopter. Like there were oh, just yeah. people that chipped in on all this stuff and they were like, hey, they knew people that had a helicopter and they were like, okay, well, can we use the helicopter? So, um, you know, he, he pulled it off for very little money compared to what you get on screen. Interesting. How Do you know how long they were able to be in the mall and shoot? Because I would imagine, you know, they would have to have done it at night after everything was closed. Yes. Um, well, I, I think they filmed in the mall for maybe like uh, six weeks. Um, and it, there was there was something about it was it was getting to be close to um, Christmas time when they shot it and they had to get it done before the mall decorated for Christmas hmm. because then they would have had to have taken all the decorations down and put them back up again in time for the next business day because they filmed at night they, they filmed overnight and, that would have made it even better you know a Christmas yeah, a, zombie a missed opportunity for sure a missed opportunity. It would have been another uh, stab at American culture is our obsession with Christmas and uh, to get that into the movie. You know, and the consumerism that goes with Christmas. <laughs> you know, and uh, I just, there's just so many things to love about this movie though, you know, and the effects are so good. Of course, Tom Savini effects, although it's funny to watch it when you watch it nowadays you kind of forget until you see it again that it sort of has that that bright red hammer-esque kind of blood like the you know like they used to use in the hammer films where it almost looks like paint and did, yeah. did this get an x rating when it first came out do you know oh, absolutely i mean I, I don't even i'm not even sure if they submitted it for i for an x rating i'm, I'm sure they did but I, I they certainly did not expect to get an R rating and they decided to release it without a rating so that it wouldn't be labeled as porn. Right. Because the X was a curse, you know, it, it still is. It's really hard to make an NC-17 film even and have it be widely accepted. So, um, but uh, the, the, the blood really pissed Tom Savini off because he, uh, and I've heard him say this in so many documentaries about Dawn of the Dead that I watched. <laughs> that uh, he wasn't really sure how that mixture of blood was gonna photograph. And when he saw it, he was really angry because it didn't look realistic, but George Romero loved it. And he said it, it fit in perfectly with the comic book tone that he wanted 
for the movie, so he left it, much to Savini's chagrin. Oh, interesting. It didn't didn't he also want shopping mall blood? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But didn't Romero also say at one point that he wanted it that way, sort of to lessen the blow, so it wasn't as horrific as it could have been? Or am I is that internet? I'm sure, yeah. Because it was there was a lot of funny stuff that he did with that violence, which was horrific on its face, but it's just so over the top and so grand guino, you know, that that he he just he just went for it and made it a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Like the the guy getting the top of his head taken off by the rotor blades of the helicopter. <laughs> it's like the old EC horror comics too. I mean, just ridiculously over the top. And so ridiculously over the top, it kind of neutralizes the horrific nature of the violence. Right. You can't take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I just wanted to look at the cast for a little bit here. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, because I've always thought this now, um, David Emge, M- M- is that M- how you pronounce it? M- who played Stephen Flyboy Andrews. Um, he always looked like Hugh Laurie to me. And I knew who Hugh Laurie was back then because of Black Adder and all the British comedies that he was in. But even watching it now, does it? Did, am I the only one here that thinks that? I'm seeing it. Now I'm not yep. going to be able to unsee it. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Of course, the great Ken Forey, who played Peter Washington, man, he was awesome. You know, you know when the, my grandfather said when the hell is... What was it? When hell overflows, the dead will walk the earth. Oh, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Doesn't he play the 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 apocalyptic cleric or reverend in the remake of Dawn of the Dead in 2004? Who says that? Yeah. And he also plays the trucker Michael Myers murders in the bathroom stall in yeah in the Halloween remake. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. He's just great. I think he even showed up on General Hospital. He's just so awesome. He can do anything. Um, we had Scott Ragniger, who played Roger, and uh, Galen Ross, who played Francine. I don't really know uh, much about anything else these two were in. Do you guys know? Well, uh, Galen Ross, uh, she. I, there's really only one other horror movie that she was well-known for, and that was um, Madman. Oh, right. Okay. Matt, well, no, wait. I'm getting it. <laughs> I think it's Madman. Or Maniac. Um, yeah. No, it's not Maniac. But she did the movie under under this under a pseudonym, Alexis Dubin. Um, now, now, see, I'm going to have to look it up because uh, it's it's going to bother me. Now, I'm not sure that it's Madman. I'm about ninety nine percent sure, but I do know she used the the pseudonym Alexis Dubin because um, it turned out that this movie was not um it's madman yes okay uh, it, it it was it was not a union production and she was a member of the screen actors guild oh. so she she did it under uh, under an alternate name and uh don't ever take anything related to madman to a convention occasionally she does conventions uh don't ever take her anything for madman because she'll get really angry at you and she definitely won't sign it <laughs> why is that she didn't like how the movie came out or no she's a member of the screen actors guild and she oh. did a non-union production that's a big no-no right right but and everybody she, knows it she's a very well-known uh maker of documentaries now and she's won awards for the documentaries so, so she's you know 
I, I, I know she likes talking about Dawn of the Dead. She's not, you know, too, too uh, skittish about talking about Dawn of the Dead, but anything on Madman, she will not talk about. Huh. That's well, here's something interesting. I, I, you know, most horror movies, and this has been a rule, I think, since their inception, most of the talent in the horror movies are nobodies. Not nobodies in terms of they're not good actors, but nobody's heard of them. Except, you know, there's like the marquee actor for the, the creature, let's say. But everybody else is kind of, most of the time, it's like new, you know, debut actors or people who most people haven't heard of. And I think that, you know, there's a practical reason for that. Uh, it helps cut costs, and the people going to horror films don't really care about star power. But I also think that there's a fringe benefit to that, which is the more star power you have in a horror movie, the less believable it becomes, and therefore the less scary it becomes. Exactly. Like to... You want that feeling that you don't know these people, and that these could be anybody. These yes. people could be you or your neighbors or your friends or whoever. It could happen to you. Right. Although I thought Brad Pitt worked in um, World War Z. I thought I, I was able to identify with him as a father and a husband. And, you know, I, it's like you want to project yourself onto that and think that you could be as, you know, heroic as he was. But yeah, I see what you're saying. But also don't forget too, a lot of, especially back then, a lot of newer actors, they wanted the work. So they would take whatever they could get. You know, if it was a crappy horror film, they did it because it was a paying gig. You know, and then like, you know, I mean, Ken Forey was a nobody. And then that movie put him on the map, Dawn of the Dead. And then, you know, now he's a cult star, you know. Big name horror movies are often cash-ins. Like nobody's going to be talking about World War Z 30 years from now. I don't, I barely even talk about it. And I'd forgotten about it until you brought it up. <laughs> so uh, final thoughts on Dawn of the Dead, Bill. Just an absolutely stunning film. Uh, it's rough around the edges because it was not a big budget film, but I think based on what is actually in the film, it's pretty amazing that Romero managed to make this. And I mean, let's face it, he really kick-started. He started it with Night of the Living Dead, but Dawn pushed it into the stratosphere. Um, and it didn't, even after Dawn, you didn't see the kind of zombie movies that you see now or, or the, the zombies being such a fixture in pop culture. It had to like germinate there for a while. And then eventually uh, the tentacles started to spread. And, uh, you know, these, these modern filmmakers went back to Dawn, I think, mostly more than anything else to, to get inspiration. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jim? I'll pick up on what you said about modern filmmakers. My one, my major objection to most zombie films, um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's not an attack on their quality or execution. It's one of the premises I dislike is this idea that, that civilization will collapse so quickly. You know, I, I think that that's a convenient plot device to tell the story of a, you know, People want to tell the story of a band of survivors in an apocalyptic wasteland, blah, 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 blah. I, I've always thought it was more interesting to have a, a kind of like Fear the Walking Dead, the first few episodes of that, in which you had this quiet run up to the apocalypse. 
and the military tries to intervene and protect people. There's this wonderful comic created by this guy named Brian Polito, Chaos Comics named Evil Ernie. And there are a series of stories related to Evil Ernie in which the dead are have beset the world, but the military is with some efficacy taking them out. And kind of like the, the impasse reached by Zomcon and the zombies in Fido, um, or the, the impasse sort of reached by the military and the zombies in 28 weeks later. Um, but that's not much of an impasse. It's more like, well, the zombies have just died off. And I think that it, it's, in many ways, it's a more interesting story to me, the process story of how do we manage a zombie apocalypse? You know, so every hospital is like ground zero potentially. And I think that Romero got, got away with it in Dawn of the Dead and did a really great job. But after that, I'm, I don't know. And I understand there are budgetary constraints, but I'd really love to see people go in a direction where there's, there's the process management of a zombie apocalypse, right? Like a like a procedural, a, a, a crime series procedural, right? You want to see they how people of, would get it under control? Right. They sort of do that in, in the Dead Rising movies, but it quickly descends into the apocalypse and people running from the apocalypse. But I think it would be, I'd love to see somebody do a, you know, gee, this, this, there's an impending apocalypse. No, people aren't sure what's going on, or maybe people figure out what's going on. And they try to react to it in a constructive way. So cynical as I may be, I don't think that civilization is going to collapse like it did in The Living Dead in 30 days. I, I don't think that, I think that's kind of absurd, actually. I, I understand it ever, as a, I don't think they ever actually gave a time frame. And I think that's one of the strengths about those movies is they don't, they don't really lay it all out. And he, he kind of plays loosely with the timeline of when these things were happening. Um, you know, so there could have been a length of time that he didn't document in these films where it looked like we might get the problem under control. Uh, that, would have, that would be interesting to see a movie like that, like sort of like a placeholder somewhere in between night and dawn, night and dawn. Yeah, I don't think he did that with a, with either Diary of the Dead or Sir. Well, I don't want to get too far ahead. Right, right. Talk about that one. Well, and you know what's funny? Um, to, to your point, Jim. Uh, before COVID, my wife and I watched uh, however many seasons there were. The first two or three seasons of The Handmaid's Tale, and I'm watching it. I don't know if you're familiar with the storyline or not. Are you guys familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. So, in I'm trying to watching it. I'm trying to figure out the timeline. I'm like, how far into the future is this? And it really wasn't that far. And I, I found it very hard to believe that society could have changed that drastically almost overnight to the point where like the main character has a daughter and the daughter's like, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And she hasn't really aged all that much by the time she sees her again. So, but then COVID hit. And we're literally sitting on the couch now, both on furlough from work. And I'm like, oh, shit, I guess society can kind of change almost overnight. You know, it, was, it just yeah. seemed like, like that. Everything was different, you know. And the response to COVID from, from a lot of government entities was a little lacking. 
dare I say. So it, it yeah. is kind of easy to see uh, how something could fall apart really easily. I mean, a, a disease is one thing, but, you know, the, 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 it's a fanciful situation in Romero's movies because it right. happens quickly. As soon as they bite you, you're going to die and you're going to become one of them. But, um, you know, it's, it's not that unrealistic. I don't think so anyway. I thought I'm just thinking in terms of the, the firepower that people have, that a shambling zombie apocalypse would be once you once you got, you know, things organized, it wouldn't be that hard to put down. The real question would be, how do you manage it going forward? And that's sort of what Fido is about, ZomCon. Right. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see a zombie apocalypse up here in Maine because pretty much all of us have guns up here. <laughs> but, I mean, is, would, it, would it be enough? I think, I think the idea of the zombies is the sheer numbers of the zombies out there. And w- would you be able to keep from shooting each other with the guns instead of shooting the zombies. Right. <laughs> that was Romero's point, you know, is like the zombies are just sort of like something bad that happened, but then the real problem happens with the people who are living. And then you're gonna be battling people that are just as heavily armored, armed as you. Right, so right. That's, that's the problem with getting in there and, and it allows them to grow in their masses. And we kind of do see that in some of the upcoming movies we're about to talk about. Um, so yeah, so did um, you guys gave your final thoughts on Dawn of the Dead, right? Recommend it? I am not going to promise to not talk about it for the rest of the show, but yes, no, I would definitely <laughs> recommend it. I'm in to just wrap up that, that one segment, but yeah, absolutely. We could jump all over the place. Um, just trying to keep a little structure here. So and that being said, let's jump into uh, Day of the Dead. First. He created the most frightening film ever made. Then, he took his unique vision of terror one step further. Now, George A. Romero takes us out of the night, beyond the dawn, and into the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Day of the Dead. There have to be survivors in Washington. Oh, my. They have more sophisticated shelters than this one. There have to be people in those shelters who know about us, who know where we are. With no radio contact, they'll come looking for us. I said shut up! They can be tricked into being good little girls and boys. The same way we were tricked into it. Promise of some reward to come. What the fuck is wrong with you people? They're dead! They're fucking dead, and you want to teach them tricks? They have to be rewarded, Captain. Why else will they do what we want them to do? I don't want them to do anything but drop
from 1985. And as I had mentioned, I, um, I knew this was coming out. I must have read about it in Fangoria. And um, uh, I'm going to read the synopsis here. Sometime after the events of Dawn of the Dead, zombies have overrun the world, and an underground army missile bunker near the Everglades holds part of a military-supported scientific team assigned to study the zombie phenomenon in the hopes of finding a way of stopping or reversing the process. Dwindling supplies, loss of communication with the other survivor enclaves, and an apparent lack of progress in the experiments have already caused loss of cohesion among the scientists and soldiers. Dr. Logan, the lead scientist on the project, has been secretly using the recently deceased soldiers in his experiments, trying to prove his theory that the zombies can eventually be domesticated. So did any of you guys see this in the theater? I did. I wasn't old enough to see it in the theater, any of the, the, the originals. Uh, I, had to, I had to wait till it was on VHS and then rent it. Yeah, I'm not sure if it played around me. I couldn't seem to find. I did find some newspaper articles and and ads when it was out, but um, I don't think I saw this one in the theater. I do remember renting it though, and uh, I I loved it. I was terrified that opening scene where the girls looking at the calendar and the arms come through the wall. That scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I thought, what a way to set the stage for the rest of this movie, you know? <laughs> a stellar moment. Oh my God! So so uh, Jim. What was your first experience with Day of the Dead? I honestly don't remember exactly when I saw it for the first time. Uh, I mean, I've watched it repeatedly since then, but I guess that the what I what I really like about it is Doctor Logan, and I was I was saying this before. He reminds me a lot of Doctor Herbert West. It played by Jeffrey Coombs in Reanimator and Bride of Reanimator with his, to quote the, um, to quote his hapless assistant doctor, morbid doodling with dead body parts. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I think that this is one of the films where Romero is starting to, his hatred of the human race is starting to distort his ability to tell a story and it's very the the characters that are supposed to be likable are really two-dimensional and most of the other characters are unlikable that's why i glom on to dr logan he's the only really interesting doctor and in some ways the most humane even as he's doing these horrible things with the dead um and i i there are a lot of really interesting ideas in the films like the films going forward. I mean, there are all kinds of cool ideas about what you can do with zombies. But I, I, I guess I, I still would recommend people see it. But, you know, the, the, the hateful nature of so many of the characters begins to grate on me because not that it's not necessarily believable, but because it, it just begins to feel like the other movies where malevolent actors push people who are already, you know, at, with frayed nerves into a very bad place. And so it, it's like, I've seen this movie before, literally. And it starts, at this point, I think that Romero's films start to disintegrate into the same story again and again, the same characters again and again. And the only interesting part is the novelty with which zombies kill or are killed. Maybe that's too harsh, but that's my, I think after 
Dawn of the Dead, it starts to it starts to lose its its oomph and its novelty. Well, Day of the Dead was sort of a disappointment as far as uh, the production for George Romero because he wanted to make a, a more a movie that was more like Land of the Dead, which followed many many years after the fact. I might add. So uh, this was Land was more like his original vision for Day. And uh, if you've ever read the, the script is available online that you can go read his original treatment for Day of the Dead. And he had uh, the budget to do it. And um, then he sat down with one of the suits and they said, like, we want you to make the movie rated R. And he was like, huh? Like, <laughs> I can't make a rated R movie. You know, I, I can't do what I want to do and make a rated R movie. And they said, well, we'll still give you the money, but we're only going to give you half of, of the budget. Oh. So he had his budget slashed right out from under him and he had to radically revise the script. So he basically just overhauled the whole thing and turned it into the movie that we know. He took it back to basics, uh, which was people trapped with each other with very unlikable characters in a small space. What's going to happen? It's a It's a... The, the pressure cooker thing that he did in the first film. Right. Right. I am. Um, I just rewatched it last night. And um, I, like I said, I saw it on, on VHS when it came out, I bought it. I still have the VHS. And I think back then I watched it quite a few times and I, I may have seen it once between, you know, the late eighties and early nineties and now, but I really didn't remember a whole heck of a lot of it. Um, I, well, I remembered like key scenes, like the guy getting his arm cut off and, and stuff like that. But um, I walked away from it this time thinking that this movie is extremely underrated. Um, I got a lot more out of it as an adult. I got a lot more of the psychology of what the characters were going through. You know, you've got Rhodes who's put in charge now because the guy before him died. They don't really say how. Um, and he's coming unhinged. And then you've got, you know, Dr. Logan, who's they refer to as Frankenstein and he's a little off balance too. And then, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Spanish guy is kind of is knuckling under the stress and uh, the girl sees this and she's trying to prevent something bad from happening and tell, trying to tell everyone, no, he's not fit. He needs to rest. And so I got a lot more out of it this time. I liked that whole, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a pressure cooker. Like these guys were all in this pressure cooker and it was just building and building until it finally just explodes. So I have to say, you know, I always liked it, but I never really thought much about it. And I always thought it was weak, but walking away from it this time, I kind of have a, a higher opinion of the film. It's a little histrionic. Uh, the, you know, the people are screaming at each other almost the entire time. Um, the drama is cranked way up and um, you know, it, it's a little uneven in that regard, but uh, one thing that the thing that really grounds this movie for me is Lori Cardell's performance. Um, I think she's really brilliant in it. And um, it, it, now this came out around the same time as Aliens. Uh, it was 1985, and um, or, or was Aliens, Aliens was 86. So it Aliens. came out even before Aliens. Then, but I mean, it was still like within like that Ripley. a year of each other. Yeah, and she really sort of went went there first. Um, Linda Hamilton was a year before her in 84 in The Terminator. 
Right. But yeah. even Linda Hamilton's character in that movie was not like Sarah's um, because you really see her in, in a lot of situations that you didn't normally see women in, 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 in unless you count like the black exploitation films of the 70s and the female action heroes. She really met that head on. And she uh, also added a very um, human element to the character as well. Um, that scene where she has to amputate Miguel's arm after he's been bitten. Um, you know, you just, you, you watch this woman and she chases a man through tunnels, bashes him over the head with a rock until he's unconscious, takes out a machete and cuts his arm off right. and gets a torch and cauterizes the bloody stump. And then she's immediately confronted by hostile soldiers who are aiming machine guns at her. And they're gonna kill this, this man who is her lover. And she gets between him and the machine guns and she just stares them down and she and she's like and she talks them down from the ledge and they walk away and then she just like collapses and starts sobbing right I, that was like really intense for me in, in a good way yeah the first she's the moral center of the film and she's the only three-dimensional character i think yeah I except mean, for I... maybe bub bub kind of is a three-dimensional character by the end too <laughs> Because he's developed a sense of sarcasm. And the movie makes you empathize with a zombie. I mean, that's a difficult task. <laughs> Romero played with those. He played with characters. A lot of his characters were two-dimensional, especially in the uh, zombie movies that he did. Um, but they're, they're, you're right. There always was like a, one or two characters that was a little deeper than the others. In this film, it was Sarah. Um, you know, um, I met... Uh, Lori was in Drive-In Asylum issue number 15, and I interviewed her for that. Oh, nice. And also, we also had Terry Alexander and John Harrison from the film as well. John Harrison did the soundtrack. And Terry Alexander was, of course, you know, the helicopter pilot in Day of the Dead. Um, and I met Lori at a convention, and I, I never really get starstruck by people. But when I saw her, I just froze. I was like, oh my God, it's Sarah. <laughs> and I just totally became like uh, intimidated by her. But she's really nice and, and she's very approachable, uh, a joy to talk to. And I was so excited to have her in the magazine because Day of the Dead was really important to me, I have to say. Um, I, I, I didn't think it was a terrible movie the first time I saw it and I still don't. A lot of people say that. That, that it's one of the, the worst and I don't agree. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's not the movie it should have been, but it's very strong what it is. Well, and now that one you- other, Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jim. I just wanted to add one more thing about two-dimensionality of horror characters, which is this. I don't have a problem with two-dimensional characters in a horror movie or any other kind of speculative fiction movie because the point isn't characterization and evolution necessarily. Yeah. It's about- people pitted against a common enemy or solving a common problem. And I always think it's interesting when you see these movies where the screenwriters sort of, you know, jerry rig or jam this character development arc in. It's like, oh, you know, the world is at the, the, there's a, uh, you know, a zombie apocalypse. This might be the perfect time to work out my issues with my father, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It's like, really, this is, you know, this is, you know, what we're going to talk about. No, I, I think it's absurd. And it's almost like a point for comedy. So I, 
as long as the characters are entertaining, which, for example, they are in Return of the Living Dead, that's all I ask, right? I mean, I don't watch science fiction movies or horror movies, by and large, for character development, because it's like, you know, who cares? I mean, occasionally people hit it out of the park, like The Exorcist, but outside of that, it's like, well, you know, imagine if, I'm, I'm trying to, I haven't seen them in a long time, but imagine trying to make the Feast trilogy about character development, you know? It's like, really? You know? Well, the characters don't know they're in a movie. Don't ever forget that because the characters don't know they're in a horror movie. So, um, you know, they really do think that they're going to die. And that's probably a natural instinct. If you know you're going to die, you're going to talk to people and, and like and address things. And Romero, you know, he went there. He, he went there in, in some of the, the Dawn of the, or Living Dead films that he did. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just I thought it was I, I thought he was good at, at maintaining a balance. I guess. And, you know, now the fact, Bill, that you mentioned that this was originally supposed to be the land of the dead, it makes me understand now because there's a couple of firsts in this movie. The one, uh, the first of the firsts is her cutting off Miguel's limb to stop the spread of the zombie virus or whatever it is to stop the infection spread. And what's funny is, like I said, I hadn't seen this for probably a couple of decades. I always assumed it worked. I forgot of the ultimate about the ultimate fate of this guy so when i watched it again i was shocked we never actually get we never find out if that worked or not um but it's the first instance at least in the romero films as far as i could tell and probably in most zombie movies in those decades where someone tried that to stop it and i just remember even as a teenager thinking that was brilliant to, to for her to do that you know well she was she was a scientist and she had apparently been working with this disease or whatever it was she had been studying this phenomenon so i i thought the implication was is that she had seen that before that at some point in the past they had been someone had managed to stop the transformation by severing a limb and if they could get it in time she is she's like i think i got it i i got it in time and she's like if i didn't i'll kill him myself right uh, so apparently there was a precedent you know, that, that we weren't, we didn't see on screen, obviously, but uh, as her character, you know, was hoping for, for this to, to occur. So I think she'd seen it before. And that's an instrumental scene in World War Z where Brad Pitt amputates the infected arm of the Israeli soldier. Yeah. And then it's like, hang on, you know, he's, he asks the stewardess, I think he does it on the plane, right? It's like, uh, you know, give me, give, give me some vodka and like, you know, you're just going to have to tough tough out this, you know, impromptu amputation. <laughs> and what's great, and now um, on this series, um, me and a couple other co-hosts, we actually did talk about World War Z. And the brilliance of that scene was set up at the beginning because the little girl had a, a teddy bear or something that did a sort of a 12 count or counted to 12. And at the same time, he sees someone get bit. And the countdown's going off and, he, you know, all, all the other sun in the background goes down except for the doll counting. And he sees that it takes 12 seconds from bite to transformation. So when he cuts her hand off, he counts to 12, ready to kill her or, you know, destroy her brain if that happens. And then she doesn't. So that's at that moment that he kind of realizes, OK, it takes 12 seconds, but you can, like you said, you can chop the limb off. And because the bite, I guess, is so far away from the major arteries 
that it works. Like if you get bit in the throat, forget it, you're toast. But bit in the hand or the forearm, there's, there might be a chance. So um, there's another first in this movie also, which is the, uh, of course, we mentioned Bub, the learning zombie. Um, I thought I, again, like I remembered Bub. I mean, that's the one of the most iconic things from this movie. And I, I forgot about the whole part where he picks up the gun at the end and walks through and faces off against Rhodes, which again, I thought that was brilliant. And just to, not only are you now empathizing with the character, you're hoping he kills Rhodes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's sort of that I am legend thing, um, which was a big influence on George Romero, the, the novel I am legend written by Richard Matheson. And um, you know, the hero of that, story was a human being who suddenly found him in a society that was made up of vampires and so he wasn't the one that should have lived anymore like now there was there was this new reality for the population of earth and he was now the outsider and he was the monster so uh i thought that was interesting that romero did that with that character of bub that like now, like it's it's a zombie with a gun tr and trying to kill a human character, and we're totally on his side. Right, right, exactly. And a lot of other movies that have portrayed zombies, sort of using the Romero rules, um, the, the zombies aren't quite uh, able to evolve the way Romero zombies seem to be able to do. But and more was... paramedics. Yes, <laughs> more cops. All right, well, you get that one. Um, but yeah, and the effects in this movie, man, I think it was Savini again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that was Tom Savini. And, and yeah, the, the effects in it are so gruesome and over the top and yet very realistic, not like Dawn of the Dead at all. There's no more day glow blood. Right. Right. And one thing about this movie too, and I actually wanted to bring up something about Dawn, um, uh, this this movie and somewhat like the beginning of Dawn of the Dead to me had that Italian horror film feel. This movie more so all the way through. There was just some kind of quality about it that had that feel. I'm sure it, it, Dawn had that because of Dario Argento's involvement. Um, but this one, like even with the score, which sounded like a Goblin, but it wasn't Goblin, right? For Day? For Day, yeah. No, John Harrison did the soundtrack for it, and um, a local Pittsburgh band called Modern Man recorded. Uh, there's a there's actually a theme song. I don't I, I don't know if they actually play it over the end credits. Yes, okay. it's an actual song song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a local Pittsburgh band that was called Modern Man. Oh, okay. Uh, Spuzzy Marcellano. I, I I'm not sure if I got his last name right, but he was the singer from Modern Man. Not goblin. No, but it had that goblin feel to it, though, at least at the beginning. I thought the music was very creepy. So the social subtext in this movie, what would you say it is? What would you guys say? I, I'm thinking maybe anti-military? I think it's more about what is the nature of civilization and to what extent is mankind capable of civilization? At least that's, I was reading the Wikipedia article about this, and that's what one critic said. And I think that that's spot on. I mean, you know, the doctor himself, Dr. Logan asks, you know, what separates us from them? Because the, the psychopathic soldiers are behave as badly in many ways, maybe worse because they have free will than, the, you know, compared to the zombies. And the zombies are, 
you know, unless they've been educated out of their worst instincts like Bob, they're just, you know, they've chosen to respond to a terrible situation by being as terrible as it is. Right. And so I think that that the, the social cultural concerns take a back seat to the philosophical, as this reviewer was saying, question of, you know, what is man and what is he capable of good and bad? Right. And the quote, I have the quote here that Logan says, he says, civil behavior is what distinguishes us from the lower forms. It's what enables us to communicate, to go about things in an orderly fashion without attacking each other like beasts in the wild. Civility must be rewarded, Captain. So, yeah, you know, but of course, <laughs> he's rewarding Bub with human flesh. <laughs> it's the only thing that could have served as a reward. Right. Bub didn't want anything else. He was right. fine, except for the flesh. <laughs> and I thought just thought that was ironic because the whole point was to get them to not eat human flesh. Well, yeah. I think it's like the old idea of human sacrifice vouchsafing the safety of the whatever civilization, if you want to call it that, is engaged in it, right? It's like if we give, maybe if we give the external threat to our civilization what it wants, it won't bother us, at least till next year when we have to do it again. <laughs> Thank you.
so let's get back to this here. Um, I wanted to ask, actually, uh, Bill, uh, Lori Cardill, is she related to Chili Billy? It's his daughter. Oh, okay. I had a feeling there was a relation there. Yeah. Um, George uh, and Bill were, of course, friends. And um, George saw her in a play in um, New York. And that was sort of her audition for Day of the Dead, even though she didn't know it. And uh, he just, he offered it to her. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was great that she, that she ended up doing that movie because it kind of like, you know, kept the series in the family. It's still tied to Pittsburgh in some way, uh, even though the, the sets for Day of the Dead really are nondescript. It was filmed um, in an area near Pittsburgh, um, but you wouldn't know it because there's- In the mine, right? Yeah. The mine scenes, the underground scenes, I think yeah. they filmed in Pennsylvania because I don't understand how they thought, I, I didn't find it believable that there would be this mass un, massive underground complex mm -hmm. in the Everglades. I mean, how do you build something like that without it being flooded continually? You know. Oh yeah, because they were in Florida in the beginning. They never really say how far they were though from uh, from that area that they flew into. But yeah, th there aren't many places that you could have a facility like that. Right, right. That's true. Um, I just want to quickly run through the cast here. We'll then we'll get on to the next movie. So Joseph Pilato, who played Rhodes, the one interesting fact I found about him was that he was born in East Boston, which is where my father grew up. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I thought he did a good job as Rhodes. You know, he's just increasingly mentally unhinged. Uh, let's see. We've got Terry Alexander was John Flyboy. I liked him. And I think him and uh, Laurie Cardill and maybe one or two other people from different movies are going to be showing up in what's called Night of the Living Dead 2. But I couldn't find a whole heck of a lot of information about it, but I did find some which we'll talk about towards the end of the show. Um, Richard Liberty, of course, puts on a great performance as Dr. Uh, Frank, Fra I'm sorry, Dr. Matthew Frankenstein Logan, because the others, I thought they were calling him Frankenstein behind his back, but then the that one scientist said it right to his face. He's like, look, Frankenstein, blah, 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 blah. I'm calling the shots here, Frankenstein. Yeah. And he's always, he's always covered with blood in every scene. He never changes his clothes, you know. <laughs> Doesn't care. <laughs> Well, he's so, you could see like at first he's just so focused on getting to what he believes is the the logical next step to trying to stop this whole thing. But then there is a moment though when he's having that civility conversation with Rhodes where you can see it in his eyes. Like like up to that point, you think, all right, you know, maybe he's got something here. And then he like, no, he's, he's gone. He's just totally unhinged. <laughs> Which is a brilliant irony because they use the point at which he's discussing civility to disclose his utter madness. Yeah, that's, that's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, Sherman Howard played Bub and uh, Gary, we've got Gary Howard Carr and a few other people that I don't really know who they are. Um, now the supposed sequels to this movie, Greg Nicotero's in it. Greg that's Nicotero right. is, is, one, is one of the uh, army guys. He was uh, one of Tom Savini's apprentices at yep. the time. And now he's on, um, uh, he works on Walking Dead and he's done a zillion things in between those. Um, George Romero played the zombie with a scarf in this, um, which I was looking for him last night when I watched it and I didn't see him. And then um, 
Uh, so the sequels, supposedly, Day of the Dead 2, Contagion in 2005. Do you guys see this one at all? Is this the one with Ving Rhames? No, that's the remake in 2008. Okay. No, there was a Day of the Dead sequel that had Ving Rhames in it. And, oh, really? Um, it was, um, yeah. Um, I don't and Mina Subari out. as well. Yeah, I, I didn't see it. I, I wasn't interested. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I well, did... it's more like a rage virus thing, you know. It doesn't, yeah. it do, it's not logically in keeping with the continuity, the it, it doesn't follow Day of the Dead, the original. It's just I think that for marketing purposes, they just said, "Oh, it's Day of the Dead too," you know. Right. Sort of a like very a very Italian thing to do, an Italian cinema from the '80s thing to do to yep. make a movie and pass it off as a fake sequel to to a a movie that's already there. Well, and actually, we didn't actually talk about that with Dawn. Do you want to talk about how it was titled in Italy and all that stuff? Bill? Yeah, it was called Zombie. Dario Argento's cut of the film was called Zombie. And at the time, you know, there, there was no sort of, there was no kind of uh, rule or law that said that you couldn't make a movie using a title from another movie in Italy. So uh, Fulci, Lucio Fulci, made a movie called Zombie 2, which in this country is the movie we know as Zombie. Uh, but that was actually supposed uh, marketed as a loose sequel to Dawn of the Dead in Italy, and it was titled Zombie Two. And there were other, you know, there, there's a crazy list of movies that followed that are supposedly also in the same series as Dawn of the Dead, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Right? How, how could there be such a thing as all these fake sequels to one movie? Right. Staggering. Um, just want to touch upon the the Day of the Dead remake in two thousand and eight. I think uh, Jim, you had mentioned that you liked it. I liked it. I don't. I'm not a huge fan of remakes. Um, it obviously is not as good as the original, but I thought it was decent. You know, they they changed the zombies to fast moving zombies, so the whole movie had more of a breakneck pace. I was disappointed though that they didn't they didn't really tackle the mall aspect of it in the same way that the first one did, and I really think that's sort of a vital plot point to the original movie i mean what do you guys think was it called day of the dead 2 or dawn of the dead 2? i apologize day of the dead i misspoke two. i misspoke i was talking about the dawn of the dead remake so we'll skip what i just said and we'll edit that out no there's a day of the dead remake in 2008 and i have not seen that one <laughs> there's day of the dead 2 contagion in 2005 day of the dead 2008 which is the remake Day of the Dead Bloodline from 2017. And apparently there was a TV series on the sci-fi channel called Day of the Dead. And I've never even, I didn't even heard of that till I was doing I'm research. I'm not even sure that's come out yet. I think that that's pending. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So let's move on to Land of the Dead from 2005. Coming to get you, Barbara. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. We don't know how many of them there are. Do you think we'll be able to defeat these things? We don't really know.
toward the city. There's nothing there, man. They're communicating. They're thinking. Zombies, man. It creeped me out. Um, they. What's funny is they said this. Uh, now uh, it's all coming together for me, especially Bill. Now that you said that Day of the Dead was originally supposed to be land around the time after Day of the Dead was released. I don't know a year or two, maybe more. I remember hearing maybe reading in Fangoria, I'm not 100% sure, but the next film was going to be called Twilight of the Dead. And that title is listed as an alternate title for Land of the Dead. So is that the connection here? Yes. Um, And and there's another funny thing about that title, Twilight of the Dead. Um, When Fulci's movie, The Gates of Hell, it's it's, it's called City of the Living Dead in Italy, but uh, it came out in the States as Gates of Hell. Originally, the company that put it out is called Motion Picture Marketing, MPM. They titled it Twilight of the Dead. And, and um, Richard Rubenstein and George Romero sued them to take that title off the movie. Um, but um, yeah, it was, I, I guess people could refer to Land of the Dead as Twilight of the Dead. That might have been an early title on the draft uh, the uh, draft of the script but ultimately they went with the title land of the dead Hmm. so the plot of land of the dead is uh years after the events of the previous film which was day of the dead many of the living have fled to pittsburgh pennsylvania where a feudal like government has taken hold paul kaufman played by dennis hopper rules the city with overwhelming firepower Big Daddy, an unusually intelligent zombie, directs his fellow zombies to use firearms against the human defenses and later leads the zombies in an assault on the human city. Hold on. Now, that that description is totally erroneous. (laughs) But, Big Big Daddy does lead an assault of zombies on the human city with the result, um, you know, the electric fence that keeps the zombies out. It now keeps the humans trapped inside. That totally, I should have reread that before I, I did this. It basically the humans are wall have walled themselves in, but now they're basically prisoners inside this thing. Um, did did either of you see this in the theater? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did not. I saw it. It opened in Pittsburgh, um, and uh, I went to see it. It was at the Fulton. What was previously known as the Fulton Theater. It's now known as the Byam Theater, and the world premiere of Land of the Dead was there, um, and. Um, yeah, it's it, it was it was sort of a letdown for me personally uh, because I, I I like I said I I was really pumped about seeing it because it was the movie that Day of the Dead should have been but wasn't and um, wh- what I what I feel it is it, it's a lot of the same ideas that we got in the in the first couple of movies you know just sort of recycled um, very well done I, I do like that movie but. You know, I, I don't think he showed us very much in that movie that we hadn't already seen. Jim? I think that I, I tend to agree. It feels like he's recycling. Or I, I heard this wonderful biting comment once 
when I was in grad school of it was of an English academic and he said, Oh, he's writing his book again. You know, like he'd take he'd written this book and now he was just basically moving the parts around and writing another book that was say, the same book as before. And that's what this movie feels like. Um, but there are, like I said, there are parts of it that I love. Like Dennis Hopper is the best part of the movie as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> because he, he's just, you know, there, there's something about Dennis Hopper. I remember some when um, Meet the Fockers. Was it Meet the Fockers? What was the film that came out before that? I can't remember. But this this critic observed that Robert De Niro, even when he does nonviolent dramas, brings a kind of threatening gravitas from his other roles to whatever he does. And Dennis Hopper's the same way. And you can't, if you, for example, if you've seen Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet, you know, with the, um, the performance of Roy Orbison and The Mask, and, you know, you can't help but think of that when you see him as this autocratic leader of Fiddler's Green. And so, you know, I think that his parts were underwritten, actually. They could have had a lot more fun with that as a as basically pimping out this this luxury prison to all of these rich people. Uh, though I'm still not sure why money would money would matter in, in a post-apocalyptic world. More that was hard to say. get past. Yeah. Like, why did they need money? I, I didn't understand that part. It, we um, see that in, the, in all three of the, the, all of the last three films, too, you know? So I, I enjoyed parts of it, but it's one of those things where the parts are more interesting than the, the, their sum. And I, I really love, for example, the cheerleader zombie <laughs> whose jaw has been ripped away or something. You know, they're little flashes of, of genius. And I really like Asia Argento in it, too. Oh, yeah. Dario Argento's, Argento's daughter. But by and large, it, it just feels like it's a series of frustrations. Like, oh, this is a great idea. Why didn't you follow through with it? So, I don't know. I, I Let's put it this way. If you're a zombie movie fan, you absolutely have to see it. If you're a Romero fan, yeah, go see it. But as a standalone horror film, I'm not so, I'm not so sold. Interesting, interesting. Now, I saw this in the theater, too. I think I ended up going by myself in uh, 2005, so my kids were real little, so my wife probably was like, just go. Um, I have to say, I'm taking the opposite stance. I love this movie, and in fact, I watched it again recently, and I really, really enjoyed this. Now, walking into it the first time in the theater, I didn't know anything about the fact that it was the supposed to have been Day of the Dead, and um, I'd forgotten most of what happened in Day of the Dead, so... Uh, like the whole concept of of the zombies starting to learn, um, I I totally kind of that just was out of my head. So I was like, oh, that's great. So then watching them now in succession, to me it just seemed like the next logical progression. Like maybe the events of Day of the Dead and the events of Land of the Dead are almost happening simultaneously, where you know Bub is regaining some intelligence and now. Uh, Big Daddy was doing that. So I was, I try to, my brain tries to connect it that way in terms of it's happening across the board. And now we're just seeing a different milieu, if you will. Um, I like the concept of, again, it's, it's not quite as claustrophobic, but when you really think about it, it, like you said, it's a luxury prison, 
So it still has this element of claustrophobia to it. I walked away from it the first time thinking I really enjoyed the the high production value. I mean, that's got to be the highest budget he's ever had um, up to that point. And I loved the cast. You know, I, I didn't know who um, Simon Baker was at the time. Um, I knew who Asia Argento was. Uh, I liked the guy that played Charlie. And of course, as you said, Dennis Hopper. I mean, you know, any movie with Dennis Hopper in it is, gets, a, you know, points in my book. Um, but like, there's this scene where Riley's friend, Charlie, which I like that dynamic too. So he's got this friend, Charlie, who um, his, the side of his face is burned. And we learned that basically uh, Riley rescued him from the zombies. And so now they're basically pals. Charlie kind of looks out for him, but uh, Riley also looks out for Charlie. They sort of have this brotherly relationship. And there's a scene where there was this little guy who had screwed Riley out of his car. He had supposedly purchased a car. And, yeah. and they're in this place where all hell breaks loose and the zombies and stuff, people running and screaming and the little little midget guy's running. And Ch this is the first time you see Charlie really in action and he pulls his rifle out he licks his finger, he wipes the sight at the end of it, and then just everything in the background starts to go quiet. It doesn't go silent, but it goes real quiet, and we're following his action as he's aiming at the little guy, and then boom, nails him in the head, like right through under the bleachers or something. That scene, to me, was brilliant. I, I just showed, it, you know, show, don't tell, it just showed how awesome his character was. Yeah, see, I I I agree with you, but I think it was a waste of the of the grifter character because he was so interesting, but he gets killed almost immediately after you meet him. There's a there's a scene, you know, there's you know, if you're a storyteller, you if you if you invest energy into developing a character or making a character more interesting, simply to dispatch them almost immediately is very disappointing. It doesn't sit well. So, you know, every time you make a choice when you're telling a story and you, you draw attention to something, you're, you're basically asking a question that should be answered later. And the question is how, you know, the, the consideration is how big is the question, because that's how big the answer will be. But if you make things too interesting and then never really follow through on the logic of them, then you, you just have a series of frustrations. Right. And that's my problem with, with Land of the Dead. Ozzie Argento's character is great in that movie, too. I mean, she seems... Um, it, it, it's not really a character that we haven't seen before, but she does it so well. She's like this, you know, tough person. And she's, she's a little vulnerable, but she's also really tough. And she understands that no matter how bad things get, everything's better if you keep a joint hidden in your shoe. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, I like to one of the things that, you know, about Riley observing the zombies, he's like, you know, they're learning to be us again. And, um, you know, one of the characters says, you know, well, they're they're pretending to be alive. And Riley says, well, isn't that what we're doing? Pretending to be alive. And I, I like that because I thought that kind of summed up the film series thus far. But what do you guys think? the subtext in this movie was i was thinking the whole thing was how everyone in that lives in the uh, in the building and i forget what it was fernwood tonight Fiddler's no green kind of like you know nero fiddled while rome burned right okay uh, yeah that's the reference yeah. and you know everyone's for the cabrini green too which was the project <laughs> 
you know, like it's it's a bunch of people living in a building and yeah. you're trapped in there, like even if it's nice. Oh yeah. Okay. Greeny Green becomes Pruitt I go. But I, I thought this was sort of the, the subtext was that it was, you know, the people are pretending everything's fine when it's not. Like you guys said, you know, why is does money have any value? I, I agreed with that hundred percent. It should have no meaning because but the humans kept clinging to it. So maybe there was a purpose in the storyline for that, you know, to show that people can't wrap their brain around the concept that money's no good anymore. You know, maybe. Yeah. I, sort of I mean, it's the end of the world, but how cool is my Cartier tank watch? You know, right. <laughs> what does that stuff even mean when, when you don't even have to have money to obtain those items anymore? Like you can just go take them. If you, if you have the ability to dodge all these zombies, you know, you can go and loot a place and steal it. Um, these, it just, I think it was his way of, I, th I think the movie of the idea of hiding your, burying your head in the sand, yeah. and uh, I, that was sort of a political thing at the time. It, it reflected the politics of the time, which has only gotten more and more pronounced in the years since then. You know, it, it's the idea of being able to pretend, being in a, in a fortunate enough that you're in a position where you really are not affected by all the things that have started to go wrong in the world and to me that's what this, end of the dead is about there was this fantastic uh it ha it actually happened there was this a few years ago but during obama's second term there was there were race riots in baltimore and baltimore was on mm -hmm. fire and at the same time the white house press correspondence dinner was occurring which is sort of the the hottest ticket in town in Washington where all the sure. glitterati and elites gather to celebrate themselves. And the Daily Show did a broadcast from there and they did it as if they were broadcasting from the home district in the Hunger Games, right? <laughs> in the Hunger Games, the home district is populated by all the obscenely wealthy people who insist that the members of the other districts kill one another for their pleasure, for their entertainment. And, you know, that was that felt to me kind of spot on. It's like there's this terrible unrest 60 miles from where you're living and you, you know, you're you're having like a Rockefeller-esque gala, you know. Yeah, that's funny. I, I just one last thing about this movie I wanted to touch upon was uh, I liked John Leguizamo's char character, but I felt like they could have done more with him. You know, he he was wanting to get into Fiddler's Green. He was thinking, well, if I do this and do that and do this for the boss, I'm going to get me a place in there. And, and because that was the whole thing is everybody wanted to get in there. And obviously, you know, he wasn't the sort of people that they they wanted in there. And he learned that still wasn't how it works. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but um, I always like John Leguizamo. We have standards. <laughs> Well, there's still room for for racism, I guess, was the message there. It's like even if yeah. you can't you can't root that out, even even in the most desperate times, there's still going to be that element. Not even racism, just a classism. OK, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any kind of, uh, you know, sort of division between human beings that's still going to be there. Right, right. There is a wonderful metaphor near the end. During one of the scenes in Fiddler's Green, they show a bird in a cage, right? Chirping away happily. Yeah. And when the zombies set upon all of the, you know, it's like that scene in Mask of the Red Death where the Red Death 
executes all of the rich party goers. <laughs> you know, when the zombies start dining on all the on all the rich, you, there's a close up of the of the canary or the parakeet in the uh, in the cage, and it's it's mechanized. It's a robot. It's, it's a robot, real. right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to to illustrate, you know, the phoniness of this life that they think is great. Which that that begs the question too, and now I'm going to dive too deep into the film. I'm probably going to think too hard about it, but so these people are survivors. They're wealthy. That's why Dennis Hopper wants them. He wants their money. But how are they generating any more money? After a while, their money's going to run out. Like where do the banks? They can't access the banks anymore. <laughs> yeah, it do, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, and, you know, it's one of those things you just have to go with. Right. <laughs> because at that point, there would be a barter society. You know? Exactly. You might not be able to see we, 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 the way a system like that would work until it happens. But they would find a way. Because, you know, the very wealthy people, like the 1%, the people we think of as the 1%, I mean, they're not strangers. They know who each other are. You know, they know each other and they know what their assets are. They're very familiar with with the, with one another. So, in a in a circumstance like that, you know, there'd be their credit would be good. Yeah, I read a I read an, a news article about what to borrow another phrase, what Goldman Sachs recently termed the plutonomy, which is a like a super rich quasi-oligarchy that's often in charge of many important things in our society. And there was a, a, I don't know what you call it, there was a, it wasn't a TED Talk. Maybe it was a TED Talk for the super rich at at one of these gatherings like uh, Aspen or Davos. And the discussion was, well, if the apocalypse hits and we're living in our lavishly appointed um, escape houses or safety compounds. How do we make sure that our servants won't murder us? Okay. Literally, that's what it was about. Wow. You know? So, you're right. Money, who cares? It would have to be a barter system. that You'd have to have cornered the market on something essential like medicine or food. Right, right. To... Or actually have a skill. Some yeah. kind of skill that, that, would, that would be valuable. Right. I have a friend who's an eye surgeon who's also really good at sewing things. And I said, if the uh, if the apocalypse hits, you're you're going to be fine because you're a doctor who can sew, you know, that's hilarious. So I guess us AV guys will be out of business because there's no electricity. <laughs> well, you know, you never know. It could be battery operated. Oh, there you go. <laughs> So I, I know, Jim, you kind of mentioned sort of that, you know, as, as an um, audience member and a, a Romero fan, people should see this. Uh, Bill, what's your final thought and, and would you recommend this? Yeah, this is the last one that I would recommend, actually. Um, I, I thought I thought Land of the Dead was disappointing and then came Diary and Survival. <laughs> so uh, it, it sort of made me reevaluate Land. Of the Dead. Maybe that wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> so uh yeah I, I would recommend land oh that's funny and you know uh speaking of diary of the dead uh we're going to talk about that next it came out in 2007 news agencies are reporting accounts of the dead returning to life <laughs> what's that 
What was that? You can't talk to her about an epidemic. What is this about, Jason? This turns out to be a big thing. I just want to record it. This sort of failure, like a major disease, with the Look, it looks hurt. It's all burned up. The problem doesn't seem to be that people are waking up dead. The dead people are waking up. It's not going down. Shoot in the head. No, no, please. They're not getting the truth from anybody else. All that news is a pack of lies. Of dealing with this crisis. Now. You gotta know that this might be bad. I'm trying to get home to my family, okay? Don't bury them. Shoot in head. People start running out of food, water, gas. They're gonna start shooting at each other. Trust somebody. What would you do? Kill us? I think about it. Maybe one of them got in already. You're saying they're all dead. Yes. This is a hospital. There's nobody here. Come on, before we get our asses shot off. I can't do this anymore. Every time we walk in somewhere, somebody dies. And the plot is taking place during the initial outbreak of a zombie pandemic. Diary of the Dead follows a band of film students and their teacher making a horror movie that decides to record the events. In... But this, I'm sorry. Diary of the Dead follows a band of film students and their teacher who are making a horror movie that decide to record the events in documentary style as they themselves are chased down by zombies. This went direct to video. Uh, first of all, uh, let me just say, I hate uh, found footage films. I hated Cloverfield because I thought it was a great premise, but I got car sick in that. I hated Blair Witch. I got car sick in that movie. I, I, but I will say that when I watched this for the first time, there were only a couple of moments where it started to feel queasy, but I felt that if you're, you're going to watch a found footage film, even though it's not a great film, this is the one to watch because Romero knows when to put the camera down, when to cut to a security camera that's static and not moving. You know, it doesn't have that whole, you know, like Cloverfield, the whole movie was this. Blair Witch, the whole movie's this. And I'm like, you know. I had to take Dramamine before you went into the theater. Which I didn't realize that there was another movie. It was called Next Stop Wonderland, which is not a horror movie, but it was shot in Boston. So we went and saw it because of that. And this was long before Blair Witch Project. And I'm like halfway through the movie, I'm getting sick. And I got up and I had to go put cold water on my face. I'm like, why do I feel like I'm, I'm car sick? And I didn't realize, I think, until the next movie that it was it was the shaky cam that was doing it for me. But I feel that one of the strengths of this movie is that Romero uh, knows when to put the camera down. Do you guys agree or disagree? Agree. Um, well, you know, I you mentioned Cloverfield and Blair Witch. I think those are probably two of the found footage films that I really enjoyed. And it, you're not wrong about the the shaky cam and the way it's because I saw both of them theatrically and that was an overwhelming experience to, to be in it watching it on the big screen something that's shaky but uh, I think both of those movies worked really well especially Blair Witch um, that's one of the I, I by by the time that came out I was already a hardened horror fan and nothing can scare me anymore but that really freaked me out that movie 
because um, I think I think people that aren't afraid when they're watching Blair Witch have never actually been in the forest in the middle of the night or in the woods. Yep. Yep. When, it, when it's dark and yep. you don't really have a, a you know you're not as confident as you are when the sun's up so uh but yeah survival or i'm sorry um diary um it, it was very uh, it, romero knew how to get the grounded camera work out of that format of the found footage and so that that was welcome i admit I, i'm not crazy about the shaky cam yeah I really liked the fact that found footage is a way to emphasize the postmodern era, you know, fragmented reality, multiple apparent narratives. And Romero doubles down on that because it, there's a plot and then there's the movie plot. So it's a plot within a plot, which is finally realized in the final scene in which the now zombified would-be zombie mummy is chasing around the, the damsel in distress. Right. <laughs> and, you know, this, I, I really like, and, and, and the, the character, the filmmaker character, actually looks like a kid version of George Romero. Um. And the girlfriend who resents his never turning the camera off finally realizes that he's, you know, giving a narrative to chaos and that in doing this, he's doing the world a service. And because nobody knows what to believe, things just, the world is helter-skelter because the laws of nature don't seem to apply. And so I, that made the film for me really entertaining, even if some of the characters weren't that interesting. Um, and there were some zombie kills in this, which were just out of this world like the zombie clown at the kid's birthday party yeah. that was outstanding <laughs> that and when the main when the main character finally gets home and her little brother is a zombie and you know attacks her and the, the 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 film professor nails him to the wall with the with the bow and arrow you know that was pretty sweet too you know, have, the, the fact they're willing to go there with a zombie kid and they just nail him to the wall, <laughs> you know. My, my wife and I watched that. it the other day and I screamed out loud when the kid jumped out of there. <laughs> but then to, when they put the, the, the sulfuric acid on the zombie's head and it gradually eats away oh, to his brain and then he dies, that was pretty sweet too. That was well done. That was well done. I, you know, I, when I first watched this, when it came out, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was terrible. Um, like I said, I was pleasantly surprised that I was able to watch it and not need Dramamine. Um, but I, when I, we watched it again recently, the, I don't think it was like two days ago, I liked it a lot better than I did the first time around. And I kind of, I think because I, this time around, I went in expecting it to not be good and it was better than I remembered it. Um, but also like, like I found this online where it says diary of the dead identifies filmmaking and other forms of communication as the source of the cultural infection underscored by the continual pun on the word shoot, you know, like Maxwell, he uses the handgun to kill a student to become a zombie. And then he just hands the weapons over to this other kid and says, it's too easy to shoot. And he of course switches to the bow and arrow. Um, but I liked that that as the subtext of the movie that it was like we're 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 dying but yet we're still recording everything 
you know, in this day and age of technology. I, I thought I got a little bit more out of it. I felt the subtext was a little bit stronger, even though by the end, I, I did kind of feel like Romero was hitting me over the head with a hammer. He could have backed off on it. You know, Bill? Uh, well, um, yeah, I think, I think that's mostly accurate. You know, um, George Romero always had a message in his films, even, even you know, the worst ones, <laughs> which I'll go unmentioned. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure there was a message in Creep Show, though. So, but true. he just directed that. I did. I don't think he wrote that. So no, Stephen King wrote that. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. Creep Show was was a total homage to EC Comics, and right. you know, they're really they're they're other than the the very blunt moral messages that were in the EC Comics stories, and that was the only driving subtext behind creep show if there was any you know it's just like these shrewd people getting their comeuppance um so that one doesn't except really poor old jordy Verrill. he didn't deserve it the lonesome death of jordy Verrill. Yeah. you your shit yeah but he was so <laughs> <know>. dumb <laughs> the message was that, like you know if that's you're a wonderfully that's american stuff. concept it's like you're so dumb that you're morally culpable you know <laughs> sure, yeah <laughs> Oh man. But yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I probably wouldn't recommend this one, but if someone asked me if I liked it, I, I liked it, especially I liked it more the second time around. I do find lately, like a lot of movies that I've revisited that maybe I didn't like in the past, I find something a little bit more redeeming in them, or I even like them, like them when I didn't like them. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the professor character was the best character in this movie, which is weird because when I first watched it, I don't know, somewhere along the way, I got it in my head that Sean Pertwee played that guy and it wasn't him at all. I was expecting him. I don't know if you guys know him. He was the, he's the son of John Pertwee. who was the sec, uh, third Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And he played Alfred in um, Gotham. 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 Awesome yeah. in that movie. And he was also in Event Horizon. He was one of the yeah. crew members of the ship. And um, what's the the military werewolf movie? Um, Blood Blood Soldiers. Dog Soldiers. Dog Soldiers. Yeah, he's in that. He's awesome in that one. Is he in that? Yep. Yeah. Wow. I didn't and, even but he that. wasn't in this. <laughs> it was uh, Scott Wentworth. But I liked his character, especially when he takes the bow as his weapon of choice. I I like little touches like that, little character affectations. Well, in him, you see the educated intellectual see watching the crumbling of civilization and sort of you know experiencing it the horror of it on on many different levels and the helplessness he feels and he doesn't want to have to kill anything but you know he's not so self-hating that he'll just give up but the entire i think he's drunk throughout the entire story and his character had been yeah, I mean, in the safe room, don't they have like twenty-year-old scotch? He's like, yeah. "Oh, I'll stay in the safe room." At the end, in the rich, in the rich kid's house. All right, here's something I didn't understand. They get to that house. They get into the 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 anteroom before the safe room, like the library, if you will. Why not just take all your supplies, maybe some buckets or something, and toilet paper, and barricade yourself in that room? And you have the safe room as a fallback because the safe room is literally almost like a vault. It's like you could at least barricade that. And then if you had to, 
you go in and they go into the safe room and they don't even bother to take any books in. It's like, well, what are you going to do for the next 15 years now? You know, <laughs> be bored you out of your that Geico commercial about people in horror movies making bad yes. decisions. <laughs> Why don't we take well, that? Plus, if they had gone into the cellar in Night of the Living Dead, they would have all survived because, yeah. as we learned, the zombies couldn't get in there after all. Right, right. That's true. Of course, Ben still, it didn't help Ben at all. <laughs> no, it was people that killed him human beings so final Some thoughts. people might say that that he was born dead in the united states because of his status and his race mm. so in in some ways he was a zombie himself not because he was a zombie but because other people saw him as a zombie and so it's okay to kill him and add him to the pile because he was never a human being to begin with Interesting, interesting. And, you know, you guys reminded me of um, something I meant to say when we talked about Night of of the Living Dead, which was a buddy of mine uh, back in the early 90s, we were talking about the movie and he said what he would have done, which I think is a brilliant idea, is he would have taken all the supplies up to the second floor and then ripped out the stairs. Stairs out, yeah. Yeah, and then just hole up on the second floor. (laughs) I'm like, brilliant. And then there'd be no movie, but. Something bad could have still happened. There, yeah. There could, have, there could have been fire in the house, okay? Yeah. And then what would you have done? That's true. Oh, they could have just piled up on each other like in World War Z. <laughs> maybe. Um, maybe they could have, maybe there was a rope they could have climbed up. <laughs> Intestines like in Dead Alive. <laughs> and then they could be like the cops in, in Resident Evil Apocalypse who are just sitting on the roof of the police station taking out zombies targets of opportunity right (laughs) until the nemesis project takes them out (laughs) all right so final thoughts on uh diary of the dead anyone would you recommend i know i saw it but most of the stuff you guys talked about in this podcast i don't remember (laughs) so it's sort of just you know is a dim distant memory for me and uh, I don't know I kind of want to keep it that way <laughs> it it's my favorite after night and dawn um really? I really yeah I, I really think it connects on a bunch of different levels that you know and, and, and it's even though it sort of recycles the plots in some ways it it's one of those ones I, I like the fact that they're on the road that they're not confined to one place. I think that adds a lot of value. They're they're sort of roving through the roving through the apocalypse. Isn't there a scene where they go and they find this this Quaker or this Amish farmer who can't who can't speak and he communicates with them with a chalkboard or yeah, something yeah, and they deaf, find all yeah. these all these zombies in the barn or something, you know, just there are all these bizarre vignettes. You know, it's like a it's like a road movie zombie movie. Yeah, you know? they have an awesome RV. I love an RV movie. So yeah. there's that. They, all they needed was uh, Warren Oates and Peter Fonda. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing I forgot to mention too about this movie is that it takes place pretty much around the same time as Night does, even though they were made decades apart. You're supposed to you know pretend because they use audio clips from Night of the Living Dead of the newscasters talking about what's going on. Yeah, I I thought that was a nice little touch. Yeah, I like that about his movies. They don't necessarily contradict one another, even though 
it, they're ana they're anachronistic, but you know you, you can sort of overlook that. Each yeah. one is its own little slice of that scenario. I yeah. Like about about his zombie films. Um, I think this is a good popcorn movie. You know, I think you know if you got a bunch of friends over, throw it on. Um, I you know, I think if you've seen it, you don't necessarily have to see you don't necessarily have to see it again. Um, but I liked it. Like I said, I liked it a lot better the second time around. I think, again, you know, walking into this kind of movie the first time, my expectations were a lot higher. And I was a little concerned about it being uh, um, a shaky cam, you know, found footage kind of thing. So um, let's move on to Survival of the Dead from 2009, the sixth and final whew, Romero film. Last time anyone counted, 53 million people were dying every year, 150,000 every day, 107 every minute. It had become an us versus them world. All we were looking for was a place where there was no them. Lousy times make lousy people. All the wrong people are dying. This island needs to be rid of them. We like it here. We think the best way of seeing this through is here. We don't want no place. We want some place. Like where? Like an island. It's an island off the coast of Delaware. Come on over. <laughs> Only families ever lived on this island were yours and mine. No strangers. What are you gonna do with them? They're Muldoons. It's up to me to save them. You can't save a person who's already dead. Somebody's gonna find a cure for this. Oh. A beautiful place to live. And to die. You give me some more bullets for this gun. Taking place shortly after the events of Diary of the Dead, the film follows the actions of former Colonel and current Sergeant Nicotine Crockett who, after a failed raid, deserts his post with Kenny, Francisco, and Tomboy and finds the existence of an island run by two warring families. Does anyone besides me like this movie? No. <laughs> Crickets chirping. <laughs> well, let me, let me dive into it then. For Jim, did, do you like it? I mean, you liked, you liked Diary, so... Yeah. I, well, again, I, I rewatched this again. Um, I didn't care for it. Diary and, and um, Survival, I didn't care for the first times I watched them. This one, I, again, I walked away liking it a little bit better than the first time. I felt that the zombies were still kind of scary in this. Um, one thing I liked about it was I liked seeing, I liked seeing stories about different types of people's, uh, different types of people in different settings and how they try to survive the zombie apocalypse. Like I often wonder, well, what was going on over here? What was going on over there while Night of the Living Dead was taking place? Um, I like the fact that he tied in the character 
the soldier character nicotine there from the previous movie who basically shows up for one scene and robs them all of their he lets them keep their guns but he robs takes all their food and everything um again the zombies were starting to get smart here so that was a recycled i concept that i think they could have they could have evolved it a little bit more they could have made it maybe almost like the next level of the zombies instead of sort of keeping it but it again it's sort of set still at the beginning of the outbreak um you had a little bit of western in there i think romero probably i don't think he ever actually made a a full-on western but it was like hatfields and mccoys kind of it was like a clannish feud or a tribal feud right right it's like are are all the people that live on plum island irish or something i know (laughs) millie irish you know, I, I don't mind the old guys being Irish, but the young kids were Irish too, <laughs> with, the, with the accent. <laughs> um, no, that just seemed utterly incongruous and unnecessary. Yeah. It didn't add any value, you know? I almost wonder if that was and just to show how long they had been there on that island, those two families, which at that point, they would have been really inbred. So that was a, a problem I had with the movie, that they didn't portray them that way. <laughs> The best part is when they show the two kids, the, the, the one kid who's like was hit by a car and is like his brain is leaking out of the side of his head and his sister is dead because yeah. he bit her and they're chained in their bassinets or something. Yeah, the crew. that was in, in some ways that was the only redeeming part of this movie. Yeah. So. I like the fact that, I, of course, I forgot to look the actor's name up, but um, the guy who played Death on Supernatural was one of O'Flynn's, uh, uh, you know, uh, supporters, men, one of his men. Um, I felt the subtext of this was the stupidity of feuds. And it also had that whole thing about people wanting to keep their loved ones. And that was what this particular feud was about, where um, the other guy felt that they could keep them chained up. They could keep, they, they didn't have to kill the zombies and they could train them to eat animals instead of people, which again is sort of a recycled concept from Day of the Dead. And, you know, I wish he had set this later in the zombie apocalypse so we could have seen an advancement of that as well because by the end of the movie the zombie chick ends up eating the horse but none of the main characters get to see this because her sister is about to tell her and she gets shot in the head or is about to tell the main characters and she gets shot in the head so it's so they're left wondering with the with the soldier character nicotine who's narrated the beginning and he's narrating the end and he's saying yeah, we don't know if we can ever train these zombies to do something different and to not eat us, but maybe we'll see. You know, it was like... Yeah. For me, this movie was... It was very much uh, an an exploration of the I Am Legend thing again. Only this time, there was a character in I Am Legend who um, shows up uh, maybe about halfway through the film, and she appears to be a normal person. But ultimately you realize that she's not she's she's one of the zombies or vampires or whatever you want to call them in that story but she's not like the other ones she's not quite like the other ones she's sort of like halfway in between both of them and i thought that was uh what this movie seemed like it was going for um sort of expanding on that idea that they're that ultimately they could be working towards like even though you're dead and you're a zombie, there could be some semblance of life that you could re- return to some kind of normalcy. A return to to normalcy is what these people are are looking for in all of the films. Like they just want everything 
to go back to the way it was before this horrible thing happened to the world. Um, that's probably the strongest thing that survival has going for it, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. Jim, you were going to say something? Well, it reminds me a little bit of there was this really great horror story involved Vault of Horror, EC Comics, illustrated by Johnny Craig at maybe 50, I don't know, mid-50s. Well, early mid-50s. And this guy is living in Haiti, I guess. And he has this beautiful wife, and she dies from malaria. I don't know. So the Haitians bring her back to life as a zombie. And he's so happy. Then she begins to rot and follows him everywhere. And finally, he has to kill himself to get away from her. And of course, what do they do? They resurrect him. And they're like the perfect couple again. And all I can think of is like, do you really want these, you know, they call them stenches in Land of the Dead, these hideous, stinking, decomposing, hideous, you know, people around. You know, that just strikes me as absurd. Even after, even if you're like, you know, crazy attached to your family members after a while it's like good god you know the smell alone the putrefaction you know there's a point at which i'm sorry i love you but you know it's like dealing with a with a disagreeable family member you only have so much patience and then goodbye you know there's a great um speaking of ted talks you mentioned that earlier there's a great one by jaron lanier about what it means to be a person and I, I think he I, wrote a book about that. Yeah, it was just it, it, his concept. I mean, like listening to him really opened my mind to that idea. Like wh what goes into the elements that, that make a person a person. And, you know, that's sort of what Romero is getting at in this movie too, I think. is like, could there be a line? Like, is there any hope that these people have? They're hanging on to these dead loved ones. Like what? is what they're hoping for, could that happen? And what what actually makes you a human being and a person? And is, there, is, it, is it possible to even have that again when you're a zombie? It, it's, right. kind of, it's kind of ludicrous on its face, you know, but um, it is an interesting concept, so. You know, you could, you could flip the, the zombie personhood thing and turn it into a rumination on abortion rights, you know? Well, it's not quite a person, but it's still sort of alive. It's alive. So, you know, maybe we should just <laughs> not pull the trigger, right? So <laughs> that's that's heavy. digging real deep for this movie. <laughs> but I see what you, I see your point. You know. So um aside from assuming someone is a uh a, a Romero completist, would you guys recommend this at all? Only for a Romero completist. Basically, it's like a movie that exists best in memes, you know, yeah. like there are a handful of scenes that could be turned into into GIFs or memes. Um, I did like the, the zombie, the zombie woman on the horse. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Like Lady Godiva, the zombie, except she's not naked, and, you know, but <laughs> I, otherwise it's just like, no, you know. Like there's a scene where you you meet the soldiers and the the female soldier is prominently masturbating. Yeah. Like while they're on patrol, it's like, <laughs> what? Right. It's like out of nowhere, and it's never explained. It's like, I, it almost feels like, hey, you want to see if 
you want to see if she'll do that in the scene? I bet you she won't. I bet you she will. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just crassly exploitative. No, it's you the know? end of the world, man. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's like that. It's like the old argument. It's like, who is it? Henry Zabrowski, the comedian who does last podcast on the left, made the observation. It's like, well, the plane's going down. So you proposition the person next to you for whatever sexual gratification you're seeking, right? Because <laughs> who cares? You're going to die in a plane crash. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you know, the effects weren't too bad in this movie, although there was one at the very beginning where someone gets his head blown off and it was so obviously computer generated, like to the point where his head gets blown off, but the top of it stays like in a cartoon and then falls and lands on what's left of the neck. And I was like, oh, really? Is that how we're going to start this movie? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to bungle the quote from Roger Ebert, I'm sure, but um he said that uh, stop motion movies looked fake but felt real and computer generated special effects look real but feel fake. I've, I've used that quote many times on the show. I agree 100%. Like the shotgun suicide scene in Species 2 where the guy blows his head off and then it reconstructs itself but it looks so fake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Even, I still think that that is the, the apex of that film. So, in terms of otherwise forgettable, but amusing as hell, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel this movie. Um, well, I don't hate this movie, but it's a it's a missed opportunity. I think he could have really set it further into the future of the zombie apocalypse and advanced a lot of the concepts that he'd already laid out, rather than just retread them. And then I, I almost think he retreaded it like the, the zombies learning and the zombies those finally being able to eat animals to have that shock downer ending where the girl gets shot before she can tell everybody that her sister was eating the horse, her zombie sister. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually wouldn't recommend this to anyone unless, like we said, you're a Romero completist because there's a lot more better zombie knockoff. Also, what does it say about Romero, assuming that that was his message, that... He thinks that undead people have more dignity and rights than animals, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, maybe he just thought it, it was... It, it's, it's, eat this beautiful horse, you know? It's a better alternative to eating us, to killing, killing people. <laughs> right, Arguably. that was the point. You know, and that kind of yeah. does go against what Frankenstein was doing in Day of the Dead by feeding, rewarding the zombie with human flesh which I suppose they didn't really have any animals they could have used at that base anyways. But, you know, because they were trying to get him to eat a pig before, too, earlier in survival. And the pigs are smarter than the zombies. <laughs> well, that underground mine in Day of the Dead was full of records. So if they could have gotten them to eat paper instead of human beings, then they would have had something. <laughs> Go make some mush. <laughs> All right, so we've covered all six films. I real quickly just want to uh, touch on a couple of the remakes. Um, Night of the Living Dead, directed by Tom Savini from 1990. I saw this in the movie theater. Did you guys see it? Have you seen it at all? I saw yeah, it I love... theatrically. Did you guys like it? Patricia Tallman. Yes. She's great. Yeah, she is. I like I like what, what he did with the character of Barbara in it. You know, that's the, that's the thing everybody remarks on is how Barbara becomes sort of like this she does a u-turn her personality she starts the movie off 
like Barbara in the original film, but then the situation sort of, sort of galvanizes her and she becomes self-sufficient. Um, that was interesting. Um, you know, it doesn't, again, like why would you remake Night of the Living Dead? Yeah. Like there, there's no reason right. to remake it, but since it was lucrative and, and that, I was gonna ask you, Roger, if that was a George Romero zombie movie too, because even if he didn't direct it, he produced it. So, that's true that's yeah started. you know i i forgot maybe that. this is his i'm sorry maybe this was his way of reclaiming his lost earnings on the original and it was also a way of reclaiming the copyright too in some respect yeah yeah i think that's exactly what he said it, it was it was just because you know he, he he could kind of take it back yeah i kind of forgotten about including this in the um in the six just because my brain just works that way it's you know night dawn day land diary survival i kind of i like to me remake oh that goes outside the venn diagram <laughs> but yeah you know i really really like this movie i saw it when it first came out i think i i think i bought it on laserdisc when it came out um and you know it, it introduced it it put tony todd on the map i mean you know he was great in that um and this was yeah. how two years or three years before Candyman. I believe no, so. I think it came after Candyman. Oh, did it? Oh, then or I it that was it was at least contemporary. Was Candyman eighty nine? No, Candyman was like ninety three, I think. Well, I guess it did come first. Everything's a little fuzzy. Yeah, Candyman's <laughs> ninety two. So, uh, sorry, yeah. I'm past the age of fifty now, so I remember things differently. Welcome to the club, man. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, um, do we want to talk about it a little bit? I, I'm open to that. If you guys are sure. Yeah. So give us some opinion, Bill. Um, well, you, you mean the remake of night of the living dead? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's really well done. Uh, it's not embarrassing. The zombie effects of course are really great in it. Um, the characters are a little cliche. Um, uh, Tom towels, isn't it and um i i i wasn't crazy about what they did with harry cooper in the movie because it was just kind of like really over the top i thought um but again maybe they weren't going for utter realism you know it, it was a movie after all so uh, yeah i like what they did with the remake but again you couldn't touch the original that's the funny thing about all all the very concept of a remake is rarely can you make a remake relevant? Like when John Carpenter did the thing, um, even though today we look back on that as a classic, at the time it was reviled and nobody liked the thing when it came out, um, but it did gain its own ground. And the remake of Night of the Living Dead has sort of been reevaluated recently, not on the same level as the thing, but um, it's gained a lot of popularity as the years have gone by but it's hard to recapture lightning in a bottle. You can't. And that's what Night of the Living Dead was, the original. So on that, in that regard, they didn't have a, a chance of recapturing that element of it. But uh, I thought what they did was, was pretty good. Right. Yeah, I agree. Jim? I don't remember it well enough intelligently to comment on it other than my impression of Patricia Tallman and I think there was a scene where she's fleeing the cemetery where her brother's been killed and there is a zombie following her and he's wearing one of those, one of those casket 
suits, like a and yeah. and the back is totally revealed so you can see his butt. Yeah, you know, oh it's, yeah that that was fantastic. It yeah. was hot. But other, <laughs> otherwise, I I thought this wasn't a necrophile necrophilia podcast, but you know. Anyway, <laughs> um, anything to get ratings. It's a ratings grab. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't remember it. I remember there's a scene where um, Patricia Tallman is wandering through a cemetery among the dead. That was pretty cool. But otherwise, I don't remember it. And I agree that remaking something like Night of the Living Dead is, you know, why? I mean, it's sort of like when Ted Turner colorized Casablanca. It's like, what? You know, really? It's like. You know, Blasphemy. it's like that scene in the 1989 Batman where the Joker goes through the art museum and defaces all these magnificent works of art. You know? yeah. <laughs> it, it's very difficult to avoid being the vandal when you take a classic and try to remake it or reconfigure it. So you're playing with fire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Instead of lightning in a bottle, you're playing with fire. Right, right. You know, I, I, yeah, it didn't, it didn't capture that magic, but I think as a, as a decent, it's a decent zombie movie. It's a solid, you know, horror movie. I, I like this one. I, I should actually revisit it. I would, it's one of those films I saw so many times. I actually still remember quite a bit of the dialogue. I almost don't have to watch it again. Um, but yeah, there was no way it was gonna, it was gonna eclipse the first one in any way, shape, or form. It just didn't have that impact. It didn't, you know, the first one came at a time and changed the way things had been done up to that point. And when this came out, we'd already seen this kind of movie before, so it wasn't anything special. All those classic horror films that really changed, aside from the old Universal monster movies, you know, there there came a time in the late 60s and the early 70s where these movies started to really shock us, like Night, um, then there was alien was another one uh texas the original texas chainsaw massacre um those were all about a loss of innocence that we had uh, in terms of what they showed us in the films and the places that they took us the bodily disruption and dismemberment mutilation um you know you can't get that back once you've lost that innocence it's really hard to find something that's going to make you feel like that again. And that's sort of the problem, you know, with people keep trying, keep trying to go back and like do it again. And, and, and really you have to find a different way to grab people. And at the time well, I, it was different, you know, but now it's not. I think there's still a movie and it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made that should not be remade that dissipated your innocence but without any bloodletting at all. And that was Todd Browning's Freaks. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Which is really one of the most disturbing horror films ever made. I would say it is as disturbing as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and everything that, you know, Return of the Living, I mean, Night of the Living Dead, it, it's extraordinarily disturbing. Yeah, it's got uh, that meta element because those weren't monsters. They, they were people. They were real people. Yeah, I can't. I, I that, saw that it once when I was younger, and I can never watch Freaks again. It just disturbed the heck out of me. It's sort of like I spit on your grave. You know, it's a film that is, in some ways, it's the greatest feminist film ever made. But you can't bear to watch it again. You know, mm. it's so horrifying. Yeah, it's like you got to go and boil yourself after you watch the movie. <laughs> 
Oh man. Um, I did have something I was going to say and I forgot what it was now. Oh, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, Dave Cronenberg played the brother Johnny in the remake. Really? No. Was he? David sure. Cronenberg? Yeah. No, I'm, I, I, I mean, that would be news to me. I know he played the, he played the sadistic bio-researcher in Jason X, which oh, is yeah. pretty cool. Let me see. They're remaking no. um, Dead Ringers, by the way. You know who it was? It was Bill Mosley was Johnny in, in the oh. remake. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. That's right. I think for years I always thought that was Dave Cronenberg. Well, I didn't remember correctly. <laughs> no, that's Bill Mosley. Wow. Bill Mosley. You know, Bill Mosley, you'll love this. I went to a boarding school in New England. And one of the other boarding schools I applied to is this famous school called the Hotchkiss School. It's about 45 minutes outside of New York City. It's very shishi. They have Andy Warhol, Mao prints, and Gucci. I think Gucci leather chairs in the library. Wow. And they, he went there and then he went to Yale. And all I could think of is like the, the evil member of the of the family in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, and like oh I went to Hotchkiss and Yale, you know it's Let just fantastic. My Sonny Bono wig. <laughs> That's all right. Um, Lloyd Kaufman, the guy behind Trauma, also went to Yale. So, wow, yeah. wow, it's amazing. See, if, our luminaries are smart people. Oh yeah. If, if you get a chance too, if you look up Bill Mosley, um, I forget what soap opera he was on. Um, but there's clips of him uh, on an old soap opera like Days of Our Lives or something. He only has like a, a like a bit part in it, but it's just funny to watch him, you know, in his early days. I try to get him on the show, by the way. I don't have enough subscribers for him. So when I when I grow the show bigger, he'll come on the show. <laughs> Fair enough, I suppose. I guess. Yeah. So, all right, let's jump over to the Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004, directed by Zack Snyder. Um, uh, let's go with Bill first because I know Jim, you kind of have a strong opinion on this. I it's it's disposable. Um, I liked it a lot the first time I saw it. It, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, and I think its greatest strength is that it hardly ever lets up. It's got that fantastic opening, which is really intense. Um, I I really thought that was amazing, but um. Maybe like in the middle section, it, it sort of loses its way. But, um, you know, ultimately, it's just sort of like meaningless. Like it, we've seen this movie before. It doesn't even have the social context that the original Dawn of the Dead had. Um, all of those things that Romero said in that movie have been said over and over again since then. So there wasn't much left for the remake of Dawn of the Dead to do it didn't bring anything new to the table as far as i'm concerned jim i i found it entertaining i agree uh, about the intro i guess my only variation on that would be when she's at the hospital i think that it would have been more cool to have her like working on some patient and he comes back to life and eats the doctor or something you know um but you know, when the neighbor's kid comes in and she's a zombie, that was pretty sweet. And driving through the chaos. No, I agree. That was really excellent. I also really liked the zombie baby. <laughs> and 
the game they played with the gun store guy where they'd hold up a sign, shoot the zombie that resembles this celebrity, and they'd shoot that guy. That was while they're playing that that, you know, sort of um easy listening version of the sickness by disturbed. You know, that that that, that scene was was a work of genius. So I love that it, uh, also during that movie was um, every time it seemed like they went out to confront this horde, this unimaginable horde of zombies, um, they wore tank tops. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> like I'd go out there at least in a leather jacket and leather pants or something, you know, not that I have a thing for leather or anything, but, you know, <laughs> something that would protect your skin. Um, no, they only had a whole mall and a sporting goods store to avail themselves of. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I remember when it first came out, I was a little concerned. I don't, again, I'm not really a big fan of remakes, um, but I, I enjoyed it. I actually did see it in the theater. I feel like same thing with night. There was really no need to remake this movie. It's like, why don't you take a really bad movie and make it good? Instead of taking a really good movie and making it maybe not so good. You have to have something new to bring to the table. And that movie, really, I think the best thing that it did, um, it was scary. It was very well, uh, there was a lot of suspense in it, which I love. Yeah. um, Because it's not all about the gore. Um, But it also did, the one benefit that they had with the computer generated effects was that scene where they drive the the vehicle out into the middle of this sea of zombies that was really scary i thought because and and that's something that romero couldn't have done or i don't know who could have done that at the time of the original dawn of the dead so that was something new that they brought to the table that was pretty scary right in my opinion and the the zombies being fast uh, as much as i was opposed to it when i first saw it um, that, that did change the game a little bit, made them scarier because, you know, you walk into the movie thinking, oh, they can just run past these guys. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else are you going to do? You have to, you have to do right. something to make the movie scarier. So the only thing, and I don't want to say it makes me angry, but it really irritates me about a movie like Dawn of the Dead, the remake is that it's well-made. It's well-crafted. It's not the original Dawn of the Dead. And that's what irritates me because, I feel like the kids today are going to see it and think that this is the original. They're not going to know it's a remake of another movie until you tell them. And so it, it kind of irritates me that it blocks that original movie that, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's just, I, I just almost wish they just hadn't done it. You know what I mean? Just be, just because it, now there's something between the original and movies moving forward, there's they're like, oh, this is the original, you know. Just because well, they're like, go ahead, go ahead, well, Jim. There's, I remember something. One of my, I, I studied classics, Latin literature when I was in college, and I remember one of my professors made this observation, and I, it's always stayed with me. He said that there were competing stories, variations of the Greek myths. And I think that there's something to that, that in order for something to prosper and endure and to live, you have to adapt to, you know, ongoing reality, new generations. So, yeah. you know, I grew up with the, with the Roger Moore James Bond more than the Sean Connery. And later in life, I 
grew to love the Sean Connery, but first I really loved Roger Moore, and a lot of people hate Roger Moore. But I, I, I think it's, I, I prefer to see it as sort of a gateway to the original. You know, if you really like this, we'll check out the original, right? Yeah, that's, and, that's kind of what I was going to say, because uh, because modern generations aren't going to think the original was good, because it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a, to them it would be a crudely made cheesy movie because they're not going to they're not going to relate to it the same just because we liked it doesn't mean they're going to like it so a remake in that regard isn't you know always a terrible idea that's a good point I hadn't thought of it that way interesting interesting um we touched upon also the day of the dead remake has anyone seen this i have not no are you talking about the new television series that's not coming series. out or are you talking remake around 2007 or something yeah, the one with Mina Suvari and Bing Rames. Okay. Yeah, it it's okay. I mean, it's 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 got some really good scenes in it, um, but including a zombified Ving Rames, which is a lot of fun. Is he but, the same character from the Dawn remake? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh no, I don't think he's the same character. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. But <laughs> I don't like the you know what happens is is that the town is. I think that they do the same thing that Robert Rodriguez does in Planet Terror, in which the the zombies are almost like a hive mind. They transform simultaneously and start wiping everybody out. And that is less interesting to me because it then it's, you know, it's like you're bitten and, and there's a gradual decline until you become a zombie, which is a lot more interesting Actually, no, they do have that one of the one of the soldiers in the movie protects his friends even as he's zombifying and even after he's zombified. But I seem to recall there's a scene in the hospital in which all these people go zombie at the same time. Maybe I'm conflating the two, but it, it is an entertaining movie to watch and I recommend it. So I'll have to check it out. Um, something I was going to say, I forgot what it was. So uh, apparently there is going to be a seventh film in the series. Uh, it is going to be called Twilight of the Dead. Romero's widow, Suzanne, is pushing to get it made. I think she may be producing it. Uh, apparently he's got like 40 or 50 scripts that he wrote that were never produced, and she wants to slowly get them made into films. 40 or uh, 50 scripts for the same film? No, 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 no. Separate stories. Um, so she wants what about to... the Marvel Comics stuff that he did? Is there any talk of turning that into a movie? That I don't know. I know that that exists. I, I don't I don't know anything about that. Um, but I guess apparently in twenty the 2010s, he was a little dissatisfied with the last two movies, you know, Diary and Survival. And um, so he wrote a treatment with his co-writer pa Paolo Zelati, which depicted sort of a conclusion to the series that explains the fate of the zombie protagonist from Land of the Dead which would have been interesting. Um, and uh, he wrote the beginning of the script, but the project was stalled when he died of lung cancer in 2017. But it was announced in April of this year, 2021, that the film had been put back into development under the supervision of Suzanne Romero, with Zelati finishing the script with screen, screenwriters Joe Netter and Robert L. Lucas. Uh, Suzanne told The Hollywood Reporter, this is the film he wanted to make, and while someone else will carry the torch as the director, it's very much a George A. Romero film. So if they pull it off, I'm willing to at least give it a shot. Oh, yeah. I'll go see it. Yeah. Um, 
there's another one too coming out that um I'm, i talked to judith o'day about briefly and it's it's called night 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 i can't talk it's it's late night of the living dead i think it's called uh, genesis and it's interesting i actually don't want to say too much because she told me not to say what i was actually going to say on the show but she's involved in it somehow and it could be interesting so i think we should look out for that um isn't there a resident evil genesis or am i misremembering it's terminator genesis i don't know about yeah that's right Speaking of Resident Evil, George Romero was supposed to direct the the first Resident Evil film. There's so many films that George Romero was attached to in the in the planning stages, and one of them was Resident Evil. He was going to make that movie, and um, he was also the first director that was signed on to do Salem's Lot. The, oh wow! The um, one that the in '79. Yeah, um, they got the movie. plug pulled on that. Um, well not really but um it just so happened that there were a whole bunch of other zombie movie or vampire movies that were coming out theatrically like john badham's dracula and Werner herzog's remake of nosferatu uh so, so they decided to make salem's lot a tv miniseries and that's when george backed out because he was like again he was like no i can't make a movie that doesn't have graphic violence i guess is what he, <laughs> what he was looking for so uh, he he bailed I actually, on i actually just as an aside i think that many of the best horror films don't have any graphic violence like say i agree Lot. yeah i mean I that agree. scene that scene where the kid the, the kid protagonist like his friend has been turned into a vampire comes to his window and scratched in the window yeah oh, my oh yeah oh my god that's one of the scariest things i've ever seen and never well, it's never not scary of course toby hooper made that film yeah the director of texas the original texas chainsaw massacre which is another film that really does not have a lot of graphic violence in it and you you walk away from it thinking you've seen things that you haven't really seen oh yeah that's the brilliance of that movie yeah yeah well, there's it's a gruesome film, but it, there's not a lot of you know, over-the-top graphic violence in it. What was that John Wayne film about the PT boat operators in the Philippines? It came out in like 40... Oh. Mid, during the war, during World War II. And it's on the tip Donna, of my tongue. Yeah. Donna Reed is in it, and she that plays like his love good. interest and a nurse. No, that's a comedy that came out in like the 50s or that's 60s. Right. And there's this wonderful scene where Donna Reed is assisting a doctor, helping a soldier who's been horribly wounded. And you never see the wounds. You only see the expression on her face. <laughs> it's, it's like the scene in, in, and somebody pointed this out to me when I saw it for the first time, Double Indemnity. The best, most horrific part of that movie is when Fred McMurray is strangling Barbara Stanwyck's husband in the back seat of the car. You don't see that. You only see her smiling in the front seat. And it's so chilling. It's so effective. No blood, nothing. It's just, you know, it's so horrifying. Yeah, there, there's um, nothing that can be as scary as what you make up in your mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's wrap this up, guys um thank you for joining me today it this was uh this was an amazing show 
uh, we ran, we've gone for probably almost three hours now. And uh, I think it was great fun. Um, I'm glad you guys joined me and talked about these Romero films, you know, and it, it all started with Night of the Living Dead in 68. And it had this, it's had this lasting effect on cinema to this day. So, Bill, why don't you uh, tell the audience where they can find you and, you know, what you got going on and everything? Well, um, well, I've, I've had my hands in a lot of stuff lately. I'm still publishing Drive in Asylum, which this is our last issue that came out, issue number 23. We had Candace Hillegas from Carnival of Souls was in it. And also um, Giovanni Lombardo Rodici, the Italian actor who got his head drilled through in Gates of Hell, speaking of Gates of Hell. And uh, underground filmmaker John Morichugo did an interview with us. Um, the next issue is going to feature Pat Cardi from Horror High. Uh, he's going to be one of the cover features. So that's going to come out um, either at the end of this month or early November. Uh, also, tune into the live broadcast on Facebook Live. Uh, Saturday nights at 8 is our usual time slot. Um, and follow my Facebook page, Groovy Doom. I'm really into vintage newsprint ads. That's kind of what I do. Uh, I just did a, a an episode of uh, your podcast, Then Is Now, uh, the, the audio version, <laughs> instead of this video version we're doing tonight. And uh, I talk a lot about it on there, so I won't repeat myself. But uh, follow Groovy Doom on Facebook for info about the live broadcast, too. Excellent. Excellent. Jim? I, uh, like you said, I just published a book in, or my publisher published the book in February called The Disgusting Supermarket of Death. And it's about, it's 22 short stories of varying varying types of horror, some of it crime, some of it sci-fi, Mo most of it's just straight on horror. And it's an homage to, in many ways, my love of the original EC comics from the 1950s, uh, the, the, the ironic or O. Henry ending. And I, I, uh, I tried very hard to be short, sweet, and pungent with each of these. Most of the stories are 2,000 words roughly. And they, they, they hit and then move on to the next. And uh, I, I think that horror fans will love them. Even if they don't love all of them, they'll find something in there to love. Before that, last year, I, I had my publisher, Marcosia, a terrific publisher and based in England, published the graphic novel I co-authored called Stay Alive, which is about a down-on-her-luck Hollywood actress who stars in a reality show about a bunch trying to survive the attempts of a bunch of murderers to kill her. And she tries to survive this while she's on a reality TV show called Stay Alive. Um, I also, you know, it's been well-received and uh, I, I think for, the, for gore and for horror fans, I think you'll love it. I also did, um, I just recorded a, a Haven podcast with you about Dead Heat, uh, Rigor. I, I don't know when it's going to when it's going to drop, but it's part of your 13 days of of zombies. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, for which this is the apogee. Yeah. At this um, point, it will have been released, and when people hear this show that we did today. Okay, great. And stay 
you know, Dead Dead Heat is a fantastic zombie horror comedy from the late 80s starring Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. And it's uh, it's sort of the gonzo end of zombie horror films that, you know, it, it doesn't take itself seriously and it ends up being just a lot of fun. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. On Twitter, it's at Novel Stay, capital N and capital S. And on Instagram, it's Stay Alive GN. Um, and there's also a lot of, I've, there's a lot of content out there that I've done either interviews I've given the podcasters or the Simply Scary podcast produced a story I wrote back in 2018 called Making Things Click. And that's season three, episode five. And it's about a, um, it's about this kid who posts a video online of himself, you know, apparently murdering his high school bully. And he creates a, a social media trend and a and a viral a viral trend of people murdering bullies, which quickly metastasizes into people murdering other people that displease them, like uh, the homeless. So, I, I tend to try as much as possible to you to fuse horror and comedy because horror unadorned by comedy is usually just too much. So, but I encourage people and I'm gratified whenever anyone reads and enjoys my stuff because being able to connect with other people like we did tonight, you know, it, it's great. It makes the world more tolerable and uh, lovely in my case. So thank you very much. I greatly appreciate this opportunity and, and meeting you. So awesome. Awesome. And was Operation Pacific the John Wayne film? he's on the sub that might that might have been it no oh. no not on the sub pt boats yeah it was oh. uh, yeah I, i'm pretty sure that was it okay <laughs> well guys i just want to thank you again for joining me on this awesome uh podcast it was such a lively discussion i thought we really dived deep into romero and you know what he was trying to put forth i will put all of your links in the show notes so people can find you guys and uh purchase your awesome books and um, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on this year's 13 Days of Hallowtober. Don't forget to check out our website at havenpodcast.com and spread the word about Then Is Now Podcast. Class dismissed. In Night of the Living Dead, director George A. Romero created a motion picture so uniquely terrifying it became a classic. Then, in Dawn of the Dead, he took his extraordinary vision of horror one step further. Now, George A. Romero takes us out of the night, beyond the dawn, and into the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Day of the Dead. From United Film Distribution. A Laurel production. Due to scenes of violence, no one under 17 admitted. Now playing in a theater near you. Check newspapers for listings.
shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com